Radical Secular, a podcast dedicated to the separation of church and state and the pursuit of justice. Email us at theradicalsecular at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at radical underscore secular. Follow us on Twitter at radical secular. For full video episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hello, and welcome back to The Radical Secular. I'm Sean Prophet. I'm Christoph Defoe. This week, we are going to talk about money. It's one of the most poorly understood subjects in the world, which is crazy because we all spend most of our time thinking about money. And I'm here to tell you today that almost all of us have been thinking about money all wrong. So get ready to have your mind literally blown. That's not hype. (laughs) We're going to be discussing something that you might have heard about, which has been bubbling under the surface for a few years now. It's called modern monetary theory. Sometimes this is abbreviated as MMT, and it changes everything. It's a paradigm shift that you simply can't imagine if you haven't already experienced it. I promise you that after you finish watching or listening to this show, you will never think about money or debt or government or taxes the same way again. This is so revolutionary that it it's just going to blow your mind. So uh, (laughs) uh, if a government is not taking advantage of MMT, it's literally stuck in another century. So buckle up and let's take this ride of revelation because that's really what it's going to be today. I I, I know, no lie. For sure. (laughs) Uh, Normally we open our show with a news segment, but this week we're going to skip that because modern monetary theory is just too important a subject and we need all the time that we have. I promise you, that what we're about to talk about is going to be much more useful to you than absolutely any of this nonsense shit show that happened in the news this past week with the mm-hmm. senators and congressmen objecting to the election. And all. it's just like it's fucking, it's a fucking clown show. Totally. So uh, but before we dive in, I want to remind you to make sure and subscribe to this podcast. Hit the big red button on YouTube. We're available on all the major podcast channels. Christoph and I really enjoy bringing you the best content we can every week. We don't do any advertising. So if you like what you're hearing, follow us on social media, leave us a good rating, write a review of our show, shout about us from the housetops. It's the only way we get new (laughs) listeners. (laughs) Uh, Please don't hesitate to email us with any notes or suggestions because we love hearing from you. All right, let's talk about t-shirts. My t-shirt today is the social democracy rose, but with a fist. Super awesome. I love that it combines that sort of the imagery. It's got like, it looks like a fist, right? The fist is where the petals would be. And then you have sort of like the rest of the rows um, at, at the bottom. And I really love that the combination of those uh, of those images, Sean. Yeah. What do you got on today? Yeah. So I am wearing a uh, motorcycle shirt. Uh, this is a retread shirt. Oldie but goodie. Just like the bike. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It is a Norton bike. Uh, We were talking before the show. I am am up to my eyeballs in uh, dual sport sport motorcycles right now. I really want to get into enduro riding. Um, I've been riding a long time, but I don't have a lot of dirt experience. And I'm going to try to find a reasonably priced, probably like a DRZ 400, Suzuki DRZ 400. Um, small, Small engine, but again, plenty of dirt tractor factor on the dirt. So anyway, I'm just... This, it's like swimming around my head. And I was like, what t-shirt will I wear today? And I was like, motorcycle t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, well, that sounds great. I miss I I miss being on a bike, and uh, I got to maybe do something about that. I haven't had a bike <laughs> in years now, so um, maybe it's time to get out of my pandemic hole and uh, <laughs> you know get out there. Yeah, and once this is all over, man, I can't wait for us to ride together. Honestly, it's going to be fucking awesome. We've never ridden together, but we will one day when the shit is done hitting the fan, perhaps. We absolutely will. I can't wait either. It's going to be great. <laughs> okay, let's get into the meat of our show. This is um, first. We have to we have to ask what is money, right? Because we all have a story that we tell ourselves about what money is. It's mostly negative, and. I'm here to tell you that contrary to what many people believe, money is not the root of all evil, nor is the love of money going to destroy your soul, nor is being in debt sinful, despite what mm. the Bible may have said about that, right? Mm -hmm. um, money can be a tool of our enslavement, for sure, or it can buy us freedom, depending on who controls it, how it's spent or saved, what kind of accountability we build into our system. Money controls everything to do with our civilization. It is our lifeblood, and without it, nothing we value in modern world would exist. Still, a lot of people get really angry when they consider the flows of money in our world, who has it and who doesn't. They see money or lack thereof as the ultimate root of suffering. They rail against what they call debt-based money or fiat currency. Uh, this is really a lot of people pissed off about fiat currency, mm -hmm. let me tell you, especially libertarians. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the gold so, standard, the gold standard, the gold standard. Oh, man, I oh roll. Boy. I <laughs> roll. Uh, some people even go as far as calling money a lie. Uh, and their re <laughs> reform proposals involve doing away with money altogether in one form or another. And, you know, newsflash, it's not going to solve the problem. <laughs> now, there's a quote from the film Star Trek First Contact, which people always bring up, and I love it too, actually. Uh, Captain Picard, through some kind of time travel magic, I guess he flies into a Borg chronoton field. Uh, he's gone back. <laughs> throwing, pushing power through the, the deflector dish. All right. that, that's always the solution, right? Yeah. Reroute power through the deflector dish. That's all <laughs> every damn time. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> but, it's like uh, if all else fails. <laughs> yeah. So they, they, anyway, they, however they do it, they get back to the 21st century. And, and that's a time after Earth has just been through a huge world war. And the first contact with the Vulcans is about to happen. With uh... So <clears throat> what ends up happening is that Picard, he, he beams up to the Enterprise with a kind of uh, a frazzled young woman who's a scientist who her name is Lily Sloan. She's been helping Zephram Cochran build the warp ship. And um, they're at a former missile base in Montana. And, and they're getting ready to launch this rocket that will be the first warp flight. It's going to basically jumpstart the Federation when, you know, when Earth gets in contact with the first alien race. So um, the Borg are there to try to stop that from happening, to try to basically just put a cap on human civilization and then assimilate everybody. So anyway, that's the background. Sloan gets up to the Enterprise and, and she freaks out. And she, at first she's going to shoot Picard, but then she calms down and she starts taking a look around at the ship and she just can't believe how big and expensive it is. And it could, yeah. uh, so she asked Picard how much the Enterprise cost. And mm. He just kind of looks at her and he says, the economics of the future are somewhat different. You see, money doesn't exist in the 24th century. And she's like, you know, she's been 
hold up at this missile base and everybody's broke. And, you know, she says, no money. You mean you don't get paid? And Picard says the key line, which is the acquisition of wealth is no longer the driving force of our lives. We work to better ourselves and the rest of humanity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 uh it's obviously a classic line and it really just sort of uh just sort of it really encapsulates the Star Trek ethos. Um it, it's utopic. I also sort of contrast this with the um with the Ferengi, mm-hmm. right? And and Latinum, right? Yeah. Because deep, oh, deep yeah. space so that's what I, which I found when I watched Deep Space Nine for the first time, I found that to be really interesting, right? Because they still are in the same galaxy, but they are using money, very much using money, right? Latinum is the whole shebang. So it, it so it may don't does that call into question whether or not that system is really fun? I mean, maybe it functions within the well, Federation, perhaps. But let, let's be honest. I mean, he's 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 pretty much talking about individuals because obviously the Federation has to make allocation decisions, and obviously, absolutely. right? I mean, there's you know, so so big decisions involving money are still being made. It's clear, and a lot of races that are in the Federation still use money. So, uh, and even they even even on the ship, right? They have replicator rations. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Replicator. So, they trade replicator rations, and so yes. it's not completely. They didn't really do away with money. I I think his point, which is well taken, is that is that greed is no longer mm-hmm. the driving force that as long as everyone has enough they're not looking to build empires with money yeah and 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 relatedly that last thing you said everybody has enough right yeah. because that because that's what lily was sort of getting at right it's like mm-hmm. well how will you survive right yeah. and, and and in the federation you really don't have to worry about surviving right like right that's the idea and in the sense of doing away with money means that you don't have to pay to to actually survive like we live in the, like you don't have to be a wage slave in order yeah. to survive well you and know? we don't really know because i mean obviously being in starfleet is like being in the military and in the military mm-hmm. they feed you so right exactly <laughs> it's not that different and it, it, i i think some some writer really kind of snuck that in as, as uh-huh. sort of an idealistic you know commentary on capitalism but you know we're going to go through here and i, I have another example there, there's a, an organization already working to abolish money in the 21st century it's called the venus project and some of you may have heard of it and it it sort of promotes a blueprint for a resource and technology driven society without money and it's gotten kind of famous because it was featured in the film zeitgeist addendum and it advocates a transition to what it calls a resource-based economy now what is a resource-based economy? I mean, you know, all economics is is based on a combination of resources and labor. But when they coined this term, they had something very specific in mind, a specific implicit political structure that's not completely obvious from the phrase resource-based economy. And this is from their website. They say, in a resource-based economy, all goods and services are available to all people without the need for means of exchange such as money, credits, barter, or any other means. For this to be achieved, all resources must be declared as the common heritage of all Earth's inhabitants. Equipped with the latest scientific and technological marvels, humankind could reach extremely high productivity levels and create an abundance of resources, end quote. All right, well, a lot of you who, understand, who know a lot about politics are probably, are probably already concluded that that's a description of communism. Like and textbook, it, like textbook, yeah, textbook. <laughs> so you know, and and with all the baggage that word entails, it's it's actually more specifically anarcho-communism, 
And you can read up on this. There's actually been quite a bit of scholarship on the concept. And I'm here to tell you, it's all bullshit on steroids. Okay. I mean, this is, there's nothing to the idea of anarcho-communism. It's a, it's a fantasy. Um, now the Venus project in their, in their literature and videos, they deny they have anything to do with any political ideology, including communism, of course, you know, <laughs> but that's really disingenuous because communism, it, even the rebranded sort of technocratic eco anarcho-communism of the Venus project is not only an unattainable goal, but it's not even something we should want. Yeah. It throws hundreds of years of understanding of economics, sociology, political science out the window. And proposals for self-organizing anarcho-communist systems go against everything we know about evolutionary psychology because they fail to establish accountability, the proper boundaries and feedback mechanisms required to keep human competitive and cooperative drives in balance. Um, anarcho-communists have even they have their own evolutionary psychologist, a guy named Peter Kropotkin, mm. who came up with a whole bogus idea called mutualism, what he observed in certain animals. And it's just, it's just not applicable. And it's only looking at one side of the ledger, which is that we have, uh, we have cooperation and we have competition and we got to keep them, them in balance. And, you know, when you listen to someone like Hobbes and, and, or Steven Pinker, uh, or any conventional political or evolutionary theorist, you know, it, it Venus Project just show, throws all that on the shit pile because they either don't understand or they refuse to accept the essential truths that we've learned about human nature and politics. Yeah, yeah. And I think what comes to mind here is the, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this later, but uh, the sort of the naivete, the naivety of thinking that human beings will just self-organize, right? It, 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 it reminds me, it feels very libertarian, right? Mm -hmm. um, this idea that like, oh no, we don't need rules. We don't need structure. We don't need, we, it, it, that's the libertarian idea. And, and spontaneously, everyone will just self-organize. And I think it is, and, and I, the, this gives me that same sort of flavor, right? When I hear this uh, sort of, uh, this Venus project nonsense. Well, look, I mean, people kind of like having property. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, how, 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 are you, how do you get, <laughs> even if you got 98% of the people who were okay with giving up their property, all it takes is, all it takes is one or two guys to say, fuck you, we're going to, you know, we're getting our guns and we're going to, we're going to stop you from taking our property. And exactly. the whole thing falls apart. So it's just, um, you know, it's also been tried and everywhere that communism has been tried, it has required a totalitarian government to enforce. That's what happens. And it's led to a two tiered society, every bit as unequal as capitalism. Yep. So, you know, I mean, when you look at their goals, you know, do, does reaching extremely high productivity levels and creating an abundance of resources sound like a very good thing? Of course it does. And obviously, you know, I'm here to tell you today that the way to achieve that very realistic goal is through the application of modern monetary theory to our existing governments, not by chasing some kind of phantasmagorical pipe dream like the Venus Project. So I have to talk about this because it gets anytime we talk about economics, anytime there's a conversation anywhere, somebody pipes up with the Venus Project. So we got to understand <laughs> why this is not something, you know, why this is not a road we want to go down. Um, so the history of it, it was founded by this late iconoclast architect, Jacques Fresco. He died in like 2017 and he lived to be 101 years old, by the way, which is insane. Remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was born in 1916, so it's nuts. 
<clears throat> and look, but, you can really just go a long way, you know, based on dreams and fantasies. It turns out that can really sort of like sort of generate life, life. Uh, maybe he believed his own fantasies so well that he was able to sort of just, you know, uh, manufacture life spirit for himself to make it to 101. You know, it's, 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 he, he, this man had a really good imagination, clearly. Listen, he was a smart guy, but he just couldn't get along with anyone. That was his that was his deal. Uh -huh. if, you, if you read his biography, like he got practically got fired from every job he ever had. And Interesting. Interesting. Did, you know, did not get along in the military. You know, he's just like mm -hmm. uh, he he was it's kind of one of these these eccentric inventors who had a lot of good ideas. It just couldn't put them into practice. Right. So, uh, he, he had his partner's name was Roxanne Meadows and the Venus Project. It's, you know, what I would call a fantasy think tank. They haven't achieved any tangible results with respect to systemic reform in the 25 years that the project has existed. They haven't built new cities or systems. They haven't fielded political candidates or lobbyists. They haven't forged any partnerships with companies which could help realize technical goals. Uh, Venus Project sees itself as operating outside of the political and economic system. And so its plans for the future are based on a set of cascading false assumptions about humanity, glib hand-waving about transforming the world's economic system to eliminate money, but somehow still producing these abundant resources. So, I mean, some people will say, well, what's wrong with idealism? What, what's wrong with, with trying to imagine a, a great future and then bring it, into, bring it into being? Well, it really drains political energy from the real solutions. Mm -hmm. it, if you look at the computer animated videos, the Venus Project shows the building of huge projects with innovative construction methods and entirely new cities powered by renewable energy. And no matter how cool these ideas may be, and some of them are pretty damn cool. You know, they look like yeah. Star Trek, actually. <laughs> yeah. uh, how do they plan to fund these multi-billion dollar developments? How do you obtain the land? How do you get materials and workers to the construction site? I mean, you know, it, it's one thing to talk about this stuff. But if you want to transform the world's energy systems, you have to deal with the fossil fuel industry, you know, and they're in charge right now. So they claim that the world is going to share its resources equally. But, you know, how are, they talk about peaceful coexistence, but you, you need to use force to get people who are in power out of power. And Vladimir Putin, are you fucking kidding me? I mean, you think he's just going to lay down his arms? He's going to be like, yeah, you know what? That brand new tank we've developed and the fuel that that the, the <laughs> fossil fuels that power it um, and my last grasp of power in this world. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to let it go and uh, let's all share. Yeah, so I, it's it's. Money is power. It's the it's yep. it's the ability to concentrate power and direct it to where you want it. And you know, it the Venus Project ignores completely this essential confrontation. And it's a common mistake made by people who have very little money or power to begin with. Mm -hmm. They de just declare themselves to be outside of the game. Yeah, exactly. And this is a I, this is a problem uh, a lot on the left. And we talk about this on the left is this misunderstanding of power. We, we watched uh, we didn't talk about the news today, but we don't need to because we know what Mitch McConnell's doing. Right. Mm -hmm. And there is a man who understands power. Mm -hmm. um, he understands leverage and he is and he is he is a ruthless power player and on the on the left what what do we have what do we have on the left we have people uh we have some people that jump up and down and scream and then we have other people who like i mean and frankly i, I mean look I, I love joe biden but are frankly pollyanna pollyanna-ish about about 
how Republicans are suddenly going to say, uh, are suddenly going to just wake up from their stupor and become statesmen again? No, 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 no. And, and, and that is, I think, one of the one of the underlying problems of this Venus Project, as we're talking about, is just this misunderstanding of power. And, and, we, and we do, we misunderstand on the left to our detriment. To our detriment. And I think um, the gloves have to come off. We have to build institutional power. And this is exactly what the Venus Project is. They are guilty of this in spades. I mean, talk about mm-hmm. po- talk about Pollyanna. You know, ha- Russia, Saudi Arabia, Wall come Street. On. Come <laughs> I mean, on. Come you know, on. You're dealing with thugs. You're dealing with people who will just kill you or break your bones or yep. destroy you economically or make sure, you know, they'll just ruin you. Ruin you. Vladimir Putin will literally kill you, like literally kill you. Like like (laughs) we're going to talk about next week about uh, about power a lot next week when we do our show on the uh, our our, our show on the boys, uh, the Amazon show. Uh, And uh, man, like that show is obviously a cartoonish version of it, but it it really is all about power. And that's why I'm really excited to have that conversation. And I think, again, it's something that we really misunderstand on the left. And it's just, it's so critical that we get our, get our, wrap our mind around it. Like Saudi Arabia, come on, these guys, their entire economy is based on this. You think they're just going to lay down? Anyway, that's a rant we could go on, but, uh, but nevertheless. Well, and it's important to talk about it because when you run into these Venus Project people, they are extremely, um, they're cultish mm-hmm. and they're almost like Scientologists and they're just zeal for this vision that they have. And um, I, I've dealt with them on social media for years. It's like, you know, it's kind of like dealing with Ron Paul followers or Lyndon LaRouche mm-hmm. or it's, they're just, they're kind of crackpot political extremists and, but they get in the way, they derail the conversation. And that's, that's what I can't stand about it. And so, and I've actually, I'm actually talking to one guy now. I actually, I had a, I had a zoom call with this guy and he really wanted to talk to me. And I think he was trying to sell me on the Venus project. And I just, mm. I told him all of what I just said here pretty much. And he's still completely on the Venus project kick. So, I mean, look, someday maybe robotics, nanotechnology, advanced 3d printers, replicators, mm-hmm. we could, re- you know, uh, our food is all being produced by auto by automation, our products, we could reduce scarcity and reduce the need for money. But somehow we still have to make decisions as a society on, do we do this? Do we do that? Uh, how do we compare a project to see which is more efficient? Um, somehow we tr- have to track people's obligations to one another and call it whatever you want. Human civilization requires something that looks, acts and smells like money. Ain't that the truth? So, okay, that was, uh, that was talking about what we don't need to do. Now we're going to talk about what we should do and, and how we apply modern monetary theory to our existing system. And, but in order to do that, we have to go back and kind of understand a little bit more about the history of money. And mm-hmm. so the first thing we normally think about when we hear the word money is scarcity. There's never enough money. Modern monetary theory tells you the opposite with MMT, there's always enough money. And that's the key to the world's future. It's the exact opposite of this nonsense that you always hear that the world is hopelessly indebted to itself to the tune of hundreds of trillions of dollars. People repeat this fear-mongering lie as if they're absolutely certain that the world's economies are about to collapse in a massive debt default. And you need to know exactly why that's bullshit. And that's what we're going to talk about right now. So I'm going to go through a detailed point-by-point summary that I made of a video from uh, a guy named L. Randall Ray. 
He is one of the founders of modern monetary theory, and there's a, there's a few others. Another important name in the field is Stephanie Kelton, and she became an advisor to Bernie Sanders, and we're going to summarize her lecture as well. Then there's Bill Mitchell, an economics blogger from Australia, and Warren Mosler, who's a sovereign debt bond hedge fund guy. So I'll put links to all these people in the show notes and their videos, and you might not need to watch their videos because I'm basically, we basically stole this presentation <laughs> from them because we feel like if this is so important that we need to spread this idea widely, and I'm sure they won't mind because right. they're kind of evangelists for this. And yeah, I mean, they, they, they put this up on YouTube for everybody to watch, right? Like they obviously want this idea out and we are here to spread it because it's a goddamn good idea. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So first we have to talk about the fake story of what money is. And, and so when, and, and this is something that you probably learned, I don't know, you know, in high school, college, whatever, when you first learned about money, it, it probably went something like this, that in the beginning, there were primitive tribes of hunter-gatherers, and they bartered and traded things with each other. Uh, barter being inconvenient, people don't have what the other person wants all the time, so they need a consistent uh, universal commodity to represent a tradable value, such as gold or silver. So. Gold being extremely valuable, anyone who has gold is worried about being robbed. So to keep gold safe, they would deposit it with a goldsmith who had figured out a way to keep it secure. So the goldsmith would give a person a receipt. And then people eventually realized that they could just trade the receipts instead of the gold leading to paper money. You can probably figure out where this is going from here. The goldsmith <laughs> eventually realized that not everybody's going to redeem their receipts at the same time. Uh, so they began to issue more receipts than they had gold, and therefore the goldsmiths became the banks. <clears throat> um, in this approach, which is called the gold standard, banks have to have a certain amount of gold on deposit uh, so compared to how much paper currency they're issuing. And so it's like something like 10%. And there's a money multiplier there that allows them to provide the economy with more liquidity than just the gold itself ever could. And... In, in modern versions of the gold standard, the central bank could exert some control over the money supply by modifying that reserve requirement. And so the central bank would, would use that to control inflation and keep it at a low stable rate. And so this is kind of the story that every one of us has, has learned, I think, uh, that's wrong. Did, did you hear this story, Christoph? Is this what you were taught? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was talking, um, the answer to that question is, I think, yes, uh, because as I want, as I, and I think the bigger story here is that it's intuitive, right? Mm -hmm. It's, in, I think that is the more that whether or not I was taught that explicitly, it's certainly as I read it, I'm like, yeah, right. I mean, that's what I kind of always thought. And, you know, it was interesting. I was talking to Lindsay about, about this before the show. And I told her that same story and she was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because it's, it's very intuitive. It's, it seems like it should be that should have been that way. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and somewhere, somewhere we're, we're taught that I don't know where, where, when we're taught it, but we're taught it. So yes, it was, it, it really does resonate with me. And that's why I was so shocked to know that it's completely wrong. <laughs> completely false. And so so in this false view, right, what, what does money become? It becomes a medium of exchange. It's a stand-in commodity for other goods. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people immediately think gold or silver. But we don't use either of those anymore. We use paper or electronic money. And so we still have to kind of think about, well, how does 
money get into the economy? Where do firms get the money to pay their employees? From sales, right? And where do consumers get the money to buy products? From their paychecks. It's a circular argument, though, because where did the money come from? Uh, and there's no story that we've ever been told about how money got into the economy in the first place, mm -hmm. except this false gold standard story. So to improve the bad story, we add banks, of course, and we think, okay, banks lend money into existence or they lend money to firms. Firms pay consumers. Consumers buy from the firms, put some of their money into the banks who lo loan it back to a firm. But it's the same infinite circle. So where did the money come from? And so- we have to also think about gold is valuable in its own right, okay? So mining gold doesn't really create money. Money shouldn't be a commodity since it has to represent the value of all commodities, including gold, right? I mean, the price of gold fluctuates, right? So something else has to represent gold. And there's not enough gold in the world also to balance out the value of everything else that's not gold, right? So. I, I mean, does this drive you nuts? This always bothered me about the gold standard. Yeah. And this is what I was talking about at the top of the show, like earlier in the show is like, you know, this gold standard, it's like this sort of pipe dream. It reminds me of these folks who think that the 50s was some sort of idyllic time, right? It's <laughs> like there was some time in the past, some mystical, it's like sort of a, like almost like a quasi noble savage narrative, right? Yeah, when money that, was real. <laughs> when money was real. Back when things were, you know, everything was solid and da 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 da. Like, and, and again, complete fucking bullshit and, and a, a pipe dream. And just one of these things that, conservatives and particularly libertarians could hang their hat, hat on and say like, oh, right. There was some always there was some time in the past when things were idyllic. That's like the constant refrain. So, yes, this sort of thing just drives me fucking nuts. Yeah. And so in their presentation, they now go through what we really know about money. What's the mm -hmm. real story and what's wrong with the fake money story. Okay. So I found this so fascinating. So fascinating. It is. I again, this is the this is the mind kind of mind blowing part. And that is there is no actual evidence of any real barter economies. Barter Which is just what? Like what that was the narrative we've been told since the beginning. Like Native Americans with knives and beads and you know and and and, and cavemen with you know, rocks and sticks. It's like, oh, of course it was always barter, but it's like, wait a second, there's no evidence for that. That's just a made up idea. That's just a theory at best. Well, it's, it's not to say that that people didn't, didn't exchange goods. Sure. They sure. Did. Of course, of course. But, and an, but, but an economy being based, based on, on that, barter, exactly. that's, that's the, that's what never happened. And mm -hmm. so this is from David Graeber's book. He's the same guy who wrote bullshit jobs and he wrote his more famous book actually is uh, debt the first 5,000 years. Mm. And so essentially what, what we find out here is that money predates markets. It was Mind not, blown. it was not invented as a medium of exchange for existing barter markets. In fact, money is as old as writing and the oldest documents ever discovered were ledgers to keep track of money. So, you know, prior to modern computers, no single commodity has ever served the function of money. And the other thing that this, this is the part that makes uh, libertarians heads explode <laughs> is that governmental authorities have always been involved in the creation of money. They're was no money creation to speak of in primitive societies. They did create primitive valuables such as beads or special stones, 
that they all recognized voluntarily, but those weren't money as we think of it today. There was no central issuing authority, and that's the key to modern money. We'll talk mm. more about that in a second. But money usually historically had no intrinsic value. This is in spite of the insistence of people who want the gold standard. The gold standard has never been required in most of the world's money systems dating back thousands of years. So this is mind blowing. We just, it's another one of these sacred cows that just, mm -hmm. just has to be thrown on the ash heap of, of history. Um, so what is money based on? It's actually based on trust. It's, it's trust that everyone will accept the value of this currency or whatever it is. It's an intersubjective agreement that's part of the social contract. But this is really too thin a rationale because there's no circular flow story that can explain where money comes from and how it gets into the economy. Contrary to this false money story, what has actual archaeology and anthropology discovered about money? And that is that half a million years ago, before we even recognize the existence of modern humans, there are scratch marks in rocks that seem to represent numbers or quantities. They're pretty clearly keeping track of something back then. We don't know what it was. 50,000 years ago, there were organized collections of bones with more complicated scratch marks on them. We still don't know what they were keeping track of. But 5,000 years ago, we find cuneiform tablets, which we absolutely can now read. We've decoded their language, and we know for certain that the writing on them is keeping track of money and debts. So, and this is something else I didn't know, is that tally sticks with, that are made of wood with hash marks on them were used to track money in Europe up until 1919. Tally crazy, sticks. Crazy, <laughs> crazy. 1919, you know, wow. Most European monarchies spent money and collected their taxes using tally sticks. Did you ever heard of this? I mean, I always thought it was coins, but it wasn't. Yeah. And all those movies like, you know, with the with the knight in shining armor, they're, they're always throwing around little bags of gold, you know, coins, throwing the coins to the commoners. What? No, sticks, fucking sticks. Yeah. And then all of our terminology of stocks and stubs or two halves of a stick, keeping score, making a score mark on the stick. Okay all comes from tally sticks. This is something that I didn't know. Mind blown. <laughs> Mind blown, dude. So here's the major revelation of this whole episode. And this is what is the definition of money? Drum roll. Money is record keeping. Right. That's it. That's all it's, it is. <laughs> it's record keeping. It's a representation of the value of goods and services. Turns out when a currency issuing authority, such as a government is involved, the records are the money. Today, we use computers and money is entirely made of electrons at this point. And this was first kind of talked about by a guy named George Friedrich Knapp, who wrote in 1905 in his book, State Theory of Money, that money is a creature of law rather than a commodity. And that's really fascinating. And, and law is really fundamentally a creature of agreement. Right. Um, basically, as we say, like, all right, we agree, it, you know, it's based and well, let me back up. Right. It, it's based in this idea of right. Uh, we talk about evolutionary psychology a lot on this show and this idea of we as human beings have like an inherent sense of fairness. Right. In terms of this person did X, Y to me and um, and I owe them for or for me, I owe them X, Y and Z for them. And it's not financial. Right. But it's sort of like. In terms of how we interact with each other socially, we know when we owe each other something, right? And mm -hmm. mon and this this system basically 
essentially that, right? But now it's become tangible. What we've done is we've taken that sort of psychological process and put it onto a fucking stick, right? But the concept yeah. is the concept is the same. And I think, you know, I, I think that's a really interesting idea. And 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 it goes along with some of the other things that we as a society just uh, take and agree on time, for example, um, right? The uh, we we talk about New Year's, mm -hmm. right? New yeah. Year's and various holidays. We just say, all right, this day we are all going to change our clocks. What? But then again, there's no objective anything there. It's just an agreement. And I think that's what's really, really super interesting about this new way of thinking about the development of money. Yeah, and you know this. It, it, speaking of evolutionary psychology, there's this whole idea of Dunbar's number, right? Which is mm -hmm. the number of people that you can keep track of, and part yes. of that part of that keeping track has to do with who owes what to whom, right? If yep. you don't have money, you have to keep track of it in your head, and exactly. when it gets above like 150 people, it's really really hard to keep track of. Which is why they came up with the bones or the tally sticks or the marks in rocks. Okay, and this is really interesting because this guy named Phil Phil. Grierson at the University of Cambridge, he speculated that the first money came out of the ancient tribal practice of Vergild, which is a blood price levied mm. if, if someone was killed or injured by someone else. It was a it was it was wrapped up with the justice system in those days. Fascinating. So you have to pay a fine to the victim's family and the fines could be paid in assets such as livestock. And this was done to stop blood feuds from developing. Because, right, I mean, you don't have, there was no real strong central authority. They weren't locking people up in jails. So they had to agree on whatever the punishment was going to be so that they wouldn't be killing each other. And this is sort of a big foundation of something I want to talk about in another show, which is called restorative justice. And that was a first, yeah, exactly what came to mind, like right away, right away. Right, it all falls into place when mm -hmm. you start understanding uh, the the idea. You know, you know, Vergild, That's the beginning of justice, and it involves money. So, anyway, uh, so after Vergild, which was tribal, when you started to see the rise of states and agriculture and things like that, the uh, state-based ancient money was based on the weight of grain. And the ratio of the value of the weight of money to grain was set by the authorities as a matter of law and posted in these ancient Sumerian and Babylonian temples. So the shekel as a coin, which that's still Israel's money today, right? It had yeah, it wild. Had <laughs> it, it, it was a specified weight in silver. And, and, and you, with that, you could buy a specified amount of grain. And mm. the state had a monopoly on the money supply, and they had the authority to set the value. And this right there is the key to understanding modern monetary theory. The government sets the value. They issue the currency. They set the value. Yeah. And it's again, and I hate to uh, keep harping on libertarians. Just kidding. I love harping <laughs> on libertarians. But this is why you need a strong central fucking authority. You need a refuge. You need a fucking referee. You need a fucking referee. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's absolutely fundamental to a government to control its own currency as the right. referee. And, you know, when the U.S. was founded, we didn't use England's pound. We created our own currency. So one of the first things we did and, you know, paper, coin, electronic money, those are just ways of tallying value, just like the tally stick. And tally sticks were very advanced for their day because because you were splitting them and because it was a unique piece of wood, 
it, they were very difficult to counterfeit because you have to put them back together. They have to fit perfectly, right? Mm. So, um, you know, you inscribe the, the value and, and you inscribe it across the whole stick. Then you split it in half. Both parties have a record. It's indelible, can't be changed by either party. So, you know, this is this right there. It's the essence. Money equals record keeping. Right. So the use and value of a currency, uh, it's based on the power of the issuing authority because it, the currency being a record is a promise to redeem, you know, the, yeah. It, yeah. and the key definition for this purpose is there is no intrinsic value it sh and there shouldn't, shouldn't be any intrinsic value. It's not a commodity. It's a record of the value rather than the value itself. Such a different way of thinking about money, man. Like it's so, and and it resolves the conflict between the idea of going to a completely digital, you know, a digital uh, financial system. Because I think that there's an idea for people that are like, yeah, but there's nothing tangible there. But it's like, no, but it doesn't have to be. There's the the, the money itself doesn't have. Uh, any real value. And like it, it's just a piece of paper in the end of the day. And I think it's really interesting. We'll, we'll talk about this later, how governments will have to take some of that money out of circulation and literally just burn it. Right. So we'll talk more about that. But I just think it's fucking fascinating. Yeah, well, it is. And, and you know, it, so the, the key is, again, the, the control, right? That mm -hmm. you can't allow people to counterfeit money because that that's creating a false record. So the, 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 a, a, a currency note or a bank ledger or whatever is, you, you know, it, it has that has to be sacrosanct. You can't allow that to be to be faked. Otherwise, it all breaks down. So it, it all ties back to this authority, this governmental authority uh, of the government saying this is money. This is not money. OK. And where this where where governments have a problem is, for example, in the in the eurozone, because mm. coining currency, it's an essential function of all states. And when you lose that function, OK, it's a problem. And the Eurozone right now is composed of, of nations, countries that used to control their own currencies, the, the Deutschmark, the, the Frank, the Lira, uh, and, and, and so forth. And now they all use the Euro. And guess what? That is controlled by the European Central Bank. So these, these sovereign nations that used to control their own currencies are in a lot of trouble because they can no longer and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about why they're in trouble and why that's a bad thing. And, and if you actually think about it, it's very similar to U.S. states. They mm -hmm. have to basically keep their budgets in balance. They lack the power to print their own money and they can issue a limited amount of bonds. But if they issue too many bonds, their credit rating goes down. You'll notice the U.S. Right. credit rating is not going down. It, it stays st sterling all the time because it is the issuing currency authority. So... Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it, it creates a problem and, and you'll see how in the U S for example, you know, you, you, you have some States subsidizing other States because their economies are stronger. And, uh, you know, if, if the States had currency printing power, it would, it would allow States to be more in control of their own destiny. They're essentially who controls the currency controls the government. Right. Right. I wonder, I, I wonder what you, what the outcome is if we say, okay, by the way, states, now you can print your own money. I mean, now you just have a bunch of different countries, right? Is it it's yeah. like, isn't that the problem? Right. I mean, or problem or good. I mean, again, I, I'm not, I'm not taking a position here. I'm just saying, because I, 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 
we are going to make the analogy later about how this uh, country is not a household and the budget shouldn't be thought of that way. Um, right. But, you know, but uh, but I wonder, is there value in having, say, the U.S. states, New Jersey, for example, like print its own money? I don't know. I wonder. Well, it, it's I think it's tough in the U.S. because the U.S. is so much more tightly integrated than the than yeah. it, 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 U.S. has been one nation for, for know, the two, entire time, 150 years close to. And so Europe is this is new with Europe and they haven't sorted it all out yet. Uh, I think that I think that over time, probably these these nations will uh, reassert themselves and either they'll leave the euro or they will get concessions from the European Central Bank. That's kind of, you know, in much the same way that that U.S. states, you know, kind of subsidize each other. They they send money to the federal government and then they get something back. And right. that, some some kind of thing like that is going to is going to have to resolve this this eurozone crisis problem. Yeah, because I, I again, I I the. Each state, as I always say, every single week, I've been reading Du Bois and right, and this is a there was a time when each U.S. state had a much stronger identity, right? Mm -hmm. As you were a Virginian, you weren't you before you were an American, right? You were a, a South Carolinian before you were an American, and and that's now been flipped. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, the const in our constitution rules we have one constitution for all states right whereas there there there's a there's the euro and there is the european union but there's also france with their constitution and their mm -hmm. system of government so it's like it's almost as if the eurozone has the worst of all worlds right it's like they they, they function part like a quasi uh quasi large state but without the uh but without but and and it's just like again the worst of both worlds in a lot of ways it seems to me well, it's a, it's a, it's an economic union without a political union, you know. Yeah. I think, oh, that's a that's a great that's a great point. That's a great way to put it. That's a great way to put it. And, and it could, whereas in the U.S., I mean, U.S. state constitutions are subordinate to the federal constitution and things like that. And uh, the federal government can overrule states in a lot of ways. So right. it's, most it's, ways, it's a much tighter political union than than the eurozone. And so we've worked out more or less this this idea of how each state relates to the federal government and i think they have some work to do yeah i don't know if it's going to succeed the, the the you know what talk looking at warren mosler's presentation and uh l randall ray and their discussions about the european union they were not optimistic that it would survive as an economic union interesting fascinating but let's go back to early america because you know early american by the way now one concept I, we have to understand is that taxation is actually what gives taxation money. is theft. Taxation is theft. <laughs> no, that's just me being a libertarian. Well, this, is, everybody. this is why libertarians and <laughs> libertarians hate MMT. They're they're never going to get along. Libertarians think uh, that that modern monetary theory is a, you know they I think one of them said it's a bad joke that's not even funny or something. It's just just uh, they 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 really just don't get it because it demonstrates how bankrupt libertarianism is mm -hmm. as a as an as a philosophy yeah. but without taxation there is no money taxation ensures that the sovereign nation has the power to deliver on its promise to redeem its currency right you issue a bank note it says this is legal tender for all debts public and private which means that the government has to take it back mm -hmm. that's what a currency issuer does they have to take it back uh, it has to be legal to be able to pay your taxes in it, any fees or, or any other obligations that you have to the government, the, the currency, the government issued has to be accepted back. And that's important. We'll talk more about that, but 
early American colonies were in the same situation. They were using, they were using pounds and they were not allowed by the British crown to coin their own money. And so they always ran short. It was almost like being on a gold standard because they were using foreign currency. And eventually they just said, I don't know exactly how this happened, but they said, fuck it. And they decided to issue their own paper money. And so they passed a law to issue 10,000 Virginia pounds. At the same time, they also passed a law to impose a 10,000 pound tax. And so if you notice what's happened there is you've created money, but you have not increased the net money supply. So they issued all this currency, but they did not create inflation. And so people could pay their taxes either in the British coins or they could pay it in the new Virginia paper notes. And when the colonial legislature received the tax revenue in paper notes, they burned the notes. They kept and spent only the taxes paid in coins, which is about one quarter of the taxes. And so notes not paid in taxes remain in circulation. But if you notice, they just replaced the coins. So right. nothing actually happened there. They just they were they they increased liquidity without leading to inflation. So the King of England did the same thing. He burned tally sticks when they were received as tax payments. And there's an interesting, funny story that they that when they stopped using tally sticks, they burned all of them at once and they basically burned down the Exchequer building. <laughs> that is pretty funny. <laughs> so it's fucking true and it's and it's hilarious. They they literally burned money to take it out of circulation. It's and, wild. It's wild. It's wild. It's like that's used as sort of like a trope or like a, an idea, right? Uh, burning money. It's like also mm -hmm. money grow on trees. It's like a similar sort of concept, right? Like they're like the mirror image of each other in some ways. Um, but at the, but it's funny to actually be like, no, they actually did burn money. <laughs> they really did. <laughs> and that's how you control inflation, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> take money out of the system. Mm -hmm. So there's a guy that that they brought up in their in their lecture. Uh, his name is Beardsley Rummel, and this was in L. Randall Ray's presentation. And Beardsley Rummel was the chairman of the New York Federal Reserve, and he's really important in the development of modern monetary theory because he came up with the insight in 1945: taxes for collecting revenue are obsolete, which is astounding. Right. I mean, what a wow. Like what a statement. <laughs> because during World War II, they used modern monetary theory to fund the war effort. OK. And so what they realized is that the, the money the government spends does not come from taxes. It comes from the, the government's currency creation ability. And so what Beardsley Rummel said was that the purpose of taxes was to fight inflation, taking money out of circulation and to change people's behavior. Which very, very important. So fucking important. It creates incentives and disincentives. And that is how you control behavior. And we, as, and that is what, frankly, what the function of a government is, is to make people not behave in a, in a supremely selfish way. Right. And so again, right now uh, we have a lot of billionaires and the one, the one of the problems with billionaires is aside from hoarding money that's not that's not you know circulating and being used to buy goods and services, they also tend to buy the political system. Mm -hmm. So if you want democracy, you have to collect taxes from those billionaires to prevent them from getting too powerful. Not even to get their money. We're not trying to take their money. We're just trying to make sure they don't become so powerful that they overwhelm democracy. So that's a really important insight from Beardsley Rummel and. You know, 
the U.S. was running deficits of 25% of GDP during the war. That would be equivalent to like $5 trillion a year, okay, in today's dollars, okay? And there, there was no negative impact. Hmm. The, the, the Federal Reserve bought lots of government bonds to keep interest rates near zero, and we're doing some of that today. And, you know, we'll, we'll come back to World War II later to talk about how the government managed to borrow 25% of GDP every year and still not create inflation. It's super interesting. But more interesting is how this power of modern monetary theory was used to recover from the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, Federal Reserve Chair Ben Bernanke testified before Congress that the Fed created $34 trillion to save Wall Street. How did they do this? I mean, this is like six or eight or 10 times the US annual budget. And they did not take that $34 trillion out of tax revenue. They created $34 trillion in real US dollars with keystrokes. Oh, I love to hear that. It's just like, I mean, I read that earlier and just mind fucking blown. I mean, it just turns everything that we think of in terms of monetary uh, policy on its head. I mean, it, it really, really does. It's cause, and I think it's because it's not immediately intuitive. It may not be intuitive because of how we've been socialized, but mm -hmm. it's all, but it's not intuitive to think of that, that you can really just make money. It doesn't, you know, it, it, it's not intuitive, but here we are. Yeah. And so that $34 trillion magic money stunt that Bernanke pulled, it's something that I totally missed that. I don't know. I mean, did you know about this? No, I had no fucking idea. I mean, we all survived through this uh, financial crisis, which sucked. I mean, I went bankrupt in 2010, like a lot of people. And yeah, it sucked. I, you know, I almost lost my house. Didn't quite. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I never understood in my wildest imagination that all that bailout money came from thin air. Okay. And why couldn't they have given that money directly to people instead of to banks and Wall Street firms? You know, everyone could have paid their mortgages and the yep. banks would have been saved too. Yeah, just world fallacy, man. Just world fallacy, and the and 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 this idea, which is a theme that we are going to definitely strike as we get deeper into this today. This idea that. Uh, people deserving poor versus deserving, not even deserving poor, deserving people versus non-deserving people, right? Like this, this idea of of that 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 people shouldn't, uh, God forbid, somebody who doesn't deserve, you know, a, a six hundred dollar check or something gets get it. something like, for like, free. Oh, oh yeah. my God, oh my God, oh my God, God forbid. And Bar and Bernie Sanders says this all the time on the on the house on the floor of the Senate. God forbid somebody gets a little more money than they absolutely need. You know, look, this is a country where we sit, kids will go through the lunch line in school and if they get to the cashier and they don't have the money and they're over their limit, we literally throw their food away rather it's than insane. give it to we, we talk, we, we throw their food in the garbage because we think it's so terrible that some kid would eat for free. You know, the, the ethics of that, the, 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 the backward ethics of that, Sean, is just makes me fucking sick. It's sick. And so it's this concept of moral hazard. If you give mm -hmm. somebody something for free, then it's going to ruin them for life. And, you know, so uh, Americans basically, you know, whether it's the Republican Party, Fox News would just not put up with the idea of rewarding people who'd taken out bad loans. So right. it took their homes. We just we just took the homes from these people and we paid Wall Street with keystroke money. All right. Which, <laughs> you know, and 
Obama had this HAMP program, which was good, but it was limited. I mean, it was basically just like, we'll reduce your payments a little bit and Ugh. we'll let you keep your house. But the problem with that is some people didn't have a job at all. Exactly. A lot of people, a lot of people. So that's, you know, I don't know. I, 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 how did you fare during the financial crisis? So during the financial crisis, I was um, I graduated law school in 09 right mm. into the financial crisis. So um, it actually hit me pretty hard uh, if because I wasn't insulated being in school. I was now right out. So I, as a result, um, I started the legal profession was decimated. So I mm -hmm. still had my job, but it didn't start for almost a year later. And that's when I ended up riding my motorcycle to California. Um, uh. I was just dirt broke. I mean, and dirt broke is an understatement. Um, uh, it, it was dirt. It was really tough too, because I take medication and that medication costs like, you know, it, it was, it was still under patent at the time. So it was like something like $17 a pill, you know, and that it was in. So I couldn't take the med. I had, I would go to CVS and sometimes the CVS lady, because I would go to the same place, she would sneak me extra pills wow. because, because that's where I was, you know? Um, and I also had these debilitating headaches that I like that, that come and they go, they're called cluster headaches. And like, if I don't have medication during those cluster headaches, like, I can't function, right? I cannot function. And this is the sort of thing that I was dealing with during this era. So um, I was, eventually I did start at my job, but even after I started my job, there wasn't enough work to go around, right? So it was really tough. And because uh, uh, there's something called a billable hour requirement, um, mm -hmm. 2000 2, hours is low, but usually it's more closer to 3000 hours at most firms. And if you don't make that number, you, you can, you know, you just don't advance, you get laid off, you get uh, fine, you know, financial disincentive, you know, disincentive money taken away from you. So um, mm -hmm. definitely don't get bonuses. So it definitely directly impacted me even after I started working. So it was it, it. So I didn't have a house or anything like that, but I was sort of hit from a different perspective. Yeah. Well, everybody was hit and everybody you know, was, of course, in the U.S. I mean, it's your money or your life when it comes to exactly. healthcare. Exactly. So, uh, and, and we realize that this is not necessary, okay? Because what, what we're going to find out as we go through the rest of this, um, we recognize now that creating money to spend into the economy to help people is as simple as writing an IOU. And the key is that the IOU has to be able to be redeemed. And government is always the one who guarantees that IOU. This is what is often referred to as fiat money. And libertarians think it's worthless, but it's not worthless. It's always as valuable as the government's promise to pay. And any government that controls its own currency can always pay. They, 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 they pass a law to basically will new money into existence. And <laughs> this, this idea makes libertarians and deficit hawks heads explode because they want to see governments constrained when it comes to the money supply, because they wish that that control could somehow be in private hands, mm -hmm. but it can't. Leaving money creation in private hands would be a disaster because the private sector simply cannot keep any promise that they might make to redeem money. We've seen it all the time. The SNL crisis, you know, we've mm -hmm. seen, you know, bankruptcies, stock frauds, everything else like that. If we let people, uh, you know, be, be issuers of currency, it would be just utter chaos. So this is something that always has to be a government monopoly. And that is why the full faith and credit of the U.S. government means something very special which is the sole ability to create money. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm always reminded um, as we're talking about this in the libertarian perspective, I am reminded um, as I as I have been, I go back to Du Bois all the time, every single week, because, you know, in the Southern planter economy, you really had a system that was essentially a libertarian paradise, right? Mm -hmm. Is that like, uh, it, basically, all of the people who had who issued uh, value who were who basically, if you were a worker, and you wanted to work, there was like, right, there was no guarantee of anything by the government. It was all controlled by wealthy landowners. And mm -hmm. that is essentially, and everyone is just essentially a serf. Everyone else is a serf. And you basically have to beg to even be able to work at these places, right? And that is the sort of end point of libertarianism. And this is what happens when you don't have a strong central government that, uh, that can, uh, that can, for, I mean, ideally guarantee jobs, but also be able to, to to create a safety net, right? To be able to give people education, to uh, and on more than anything else, to to keep the uh, to, to 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 counterbalance the the concentration of wealth in the hands of individuals. So, as you're talking about this idea that we want the to, uh, they libertarians want uh, private people to be able to to issue currency bitcoin whatever uh, this is this that is the end outcome of that right is this sort of a system essentially a plantation system or a or, or a or a uh, fiefdoms type system yeah it's feudalism it's warlords it's feudalism that. that's the word i'm looking for yeah and <clears throat> i mean when you actually look at what money is all money is credit money there's no money without debt. The, you know, the state's money becomes the government's debt. And this right. functions so long as the government accepts its own money back in payment. Sovereignty, then, we understand it's a set of institutions which has the power to levy fees, fines, and taxes, and to specify what currency will be accepted in payment of those levies. It's literally the most fundamental power of a sovereign government, even more important than the territory the government controls. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this go and this is connects to the uh, the whole Hobbesian idea, the all the social co uh, contract theorists, but especially Hobbes, right? This idea of sub of of uh, subordinating oneself to the to the Leviathan, right? And yep. you, you can do that with you. We do that with the money. We do that with the the right uh, of of power of a physical mm -hmm. power and retribution and all that, right? We 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 abdicate our our uh, our power to do that to a sovereign because you cannot run a civilization if any don't. other way there's no other way yeah and so it's it's really interesting there's another part of this that is i think what underpins libertarians ideas about debt and that is that you know debt as a sin of some kind and i think this is so fundamental dude i think this is, <laughs> I think this is so fucking fundamental and this is so the radical secular like this is our this is this is our shit right here this is yeah. This is what we are. We rail about. This is why we are we're 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 frankly fucking angry all the time. Exactly you know, because <laughs> because of shit like this. All shit right. like this. <laughs> Most religions, particularly Islam in the modern world, Christians have seems to have evolved past this. But Islam uh, bans the charging of interest, and without interest, money doesn't work. So you know it's <laughs> it just doesn't. And so these religions they tend to be hostile to debtors and creditors. And they label both debtors and creditors as sinners. And it's mm -hmm. kind of a paradox because the temples were the ones who were the original debtors and creditors in the issuance of money. I guess they probably didn't want the competition. You know, they didn't want anybody else to be a debtor or creditor because they wanted to control that business. And, and this is how the concept of redemption of money came to be associated with its opposite, which is sin. 
sin and redemption. Because remember, money predates religion. So the, the, the very concepts of sin and redemption came from the process of money creation through debt, sin, and redemption, repayment. So repaying a debt is still referred to to this day as a redemption. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. So issuance of debt by government in the form of sovereign money comes first before redemption involving the collection of taxes. It's exactly the opposite of how most people think this works. The government does not collect taxes and then spend the money. It collects taxes to redeem the money that it's already issued. And this is just like, wow, you know? Just like, wow, man. Like, it's the whole tax and spend liberal trope, you know? Uh, No, actually, that's not how it works. And I think just more generally, this idea of I was really, it's again, as I, once I read this, the idea of money as sin and that connection and debt as sin and that connection is so obvious now, now that it's been, now that I see it. Um, but it's like, wow. I mean, and it just goes to show how, and it, it all ties into how this ends up becoming a moral issue, right? And then you can look mm-hmm. at just world fallacy issue, just, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like, oh, if you're poor, that's that is or and you're in debt. That you're is dead. a more you're you are a moral. There's something morally wrong with you, right? Those things are very connected, and I think that you cannot talk about how the Amer how how the entire world runs, but especially how American conservatives look at this without talking about this issue. It's fascinating. Well, think about the divine right of kings, right? Kings were the wealthiest, mm-hmm. uh, and and they were and they were the wealthiest because they were the ones controlling the currency. By the way, <laughs> right? You know? Right. So <laughs> the king is attached to God. And the, and so therefore wealth is divine. I mean, yeah. this is it's it is it, and this is so ingrained in people's heads uh, right now and 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 always. I mean, this is why it's always. so hard to really convey these concepts of modern monetary theory because they're counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't know if they're counterintuitive because we've been socialized that way for since the agricultural revolution, or I wonder, or or since beginning, or is it, uh, or is it something inherent to being a human being that that that, that it this idea reflects that that the, re, is reflected in this idea? I wonder. I don't know, and I, and I, I'm not sure what the answer to that question is, but I wonder. Well, here's the here's the concept. It's it's an abstraction, right? When you start to think about uh, the government can be able to can create as much money as it wants, you think, well, where does it come from? And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. the it's almost like the idea of looking at where where does humans come from? Mm. It's much easier to to say, well, they were created by God, and right. it's much easier to say that that money money has to has to be created by work. Right, the 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 labor theory of value kind of thing, right? Sure. Uh, going back to Marx and whatever, and and even and and then the Puritan work ethic. Those things all kind of conspire to make the idea of of the government creating money from nothing abhorrent. Yeah, that's so interesting, right? And and it goes back to the idea. That's such a great connection, Sean, because it it reminds me of how folks are just they cannot wrap their mind around the idea of something from nothing right mm-hmm. uh they, they cannot the wrap their mind around the universe from nothing right that right. idea is so counterintuitive to the way we understand the world right because we know that if i want x i have to do y right that's how we operate in this world things don't come from nowhere but things sometimes do come from nowhere that it had to have right mm-hmm. it had to have so anyway but i think that's really interesting and to make that connection of why this makes people feel uncomfortable 
the idea of the government just making money from nothing. Yeah, and as it turns out, we'll find out later. There are limits, and and, yes, and yes, there are yes, yes, real yes, yes. limits, and and this Definitely. this does all make sense. But but when people initially hear it, they just go, ha, 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 you know, yeah. and they they just mock it and dismiss it. Mm-hmm. But part of that comes from this idea uh, that you mentioned earlier about government is not like a household. And for most people, they think to themselves, right? They think, um, well, I couldn't borrow as much money as I wanted. Uh, I have to, I have to balance my spending and my and and what I take in, and you know we all know this intuitively that for a family or a business to just keep borrowing money is a terrible strategy. It's not going to end well. You're going to lose your business, lose your house, be evicted, whatever. So, you know, and and oftentimes you'll hear this from economists from the Austrian school. They talk about mm-hmm. government debt as if it was household borrowing. In, in, in one of the videos that I watched for this, there was an Austrian school economist named Dr. Robert Murphy, and he was debating Warren Mosler, and he actually compared government deficit spending to a householder surviving by robbing liquor stores. <laughs> and it's so, again, you'd want to talk about, and conservatives do this all the time. You see this, it's like the idea of bringing, it's it's analogous to bringing a snowball into the, into the, onto the house floor, the Senate floor and saying, look, how could there be global warming? It's like, because it's like, it's somehow intuitive to think that way. Right. But it's like, because, but it, but it, it, it's intuitive to the way our brains work, but it's not the way it actually works. And so that, so this idea that we all can, physically feel what it's like to have a budget, a household budget and to survive in capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can. And so when you so the that is how we think of how the government works, too. But that is not how a sovereign government works. And I, that that is something that also blew my mind a little bit as I read this, even though I don't tend to think of the government that way to have to see it concretely explained and talked about, I think, is is, is really useful and, and important. Yeah, well, and, you know, this is. <laughs> Look, this guy, Dr. Robert Murphy, he's a fucking PhD, okay? There is ah. no way that he doesn't understand this. So right. it's just disingenuous. Disingenuous. So, um, and he knows and everyone knows, okay? We, we, we have to understand that there's a difference between issuers and users of currency. Mm. An issuer of currency can't go broke. They don't need to steal anything from anyone because they have the singular power of a government that it literally cannot run out of money. It's fucking crazy. And like, it's again, conceptually really hard, I think, for people to wrap their mind around. And and that's why I think modern money, um, uh, this MMT is, it has such an uphill battle, right? Because, because it's not intuitive. And this is what pisses me off so much about conservative, so many conservative arguments, right? It's like the, it's, you know, another great, great analogy is, would you like, would you leave your door unlocked? Right. Mm-hmm. In, in terms of, in terms of immigration, right? Like, yeah. right. In terms totally of defending, dishonest. It, it, it's totally dishonest. No, that's not the way a, a country is not your fucking house. It doesn't work that way. You don't have people coming in your house and working and leaving and sending money out. It's, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And again, the concept, uh, it, it's these easy concepts that, that the, it's easy explanations and disingenuous explanations of how things work that, that, yeah. that, that, that folks that are not particularly, um, you know, uh, particularly well, sophisticated, will will swallow hook, line, and sinker. It's motivated reasoning, okay? Because if mm. you look at if you look at the libertarian agenda, they do not want to recognize governments. They they think of everybody as an individual, and they don't 
want to recognize or even under try to understand systemic effects, right? Right. And they don't want to recognize any authority. They think that everybody, everybody, you know, nobody should have any authority over anyone else. That's the libertarian ethic. So the idea of that is so automatically stupid. It's going to compare your country to, you know, letting people in your country to letting people in your house. It's mm -hmm. going to compare the federal budget to a household budget. It's completely it's just so dishonest. And, and, and frankly, it's childish. It's childish and it, it's anti-systems, right? As you always say, and what we always say on this show, it's this, it's this idea of, and, and this is, it's this idea of like, uh, and I'll make another analogy. I'm making a lot of analogies. Another analogy is like, um, oh no, I'm not racist, but I also vote for policies that disproportionately impact people of color and and it's like this sort of artificial disconnect of mm -hmm. not and this is and this is the libertarian perspective and again it's disingenuous it's disingenuous. it's not like these people are stupid this guy's got a fucking phd he's not stupid he no. is like he knows what he's talking about but he's making a disingenuous cherry-picked argument um because he because because of his ideology it's an ideologically driven argument not an outcome-based argument and that is one of the fundamental problems about libertarianism that it's always ideologically driven it is deontologically driven. It is not utilitarian or outcome based. Well, and they sit there and they try to make it all, you know, clinical and generic. It's like, oh, I just want a balanced budget. But within that statement, they are denying resources to the poor. And so right. it's it's a, it's an ability to, to try to distance themselves and make a dishonest argument to maintain hierarchy inequality. And exactly. Defense of, our, defense of hierarchy every fucking time, every fucking time. And they're not honest with themselves about right. it, about what they're doing. So, okay, spending, government spending. How does the government spend? It does not spend any paper money into existence. The only time paper money enters the system is when you go to the ATM. Okay, uh, government spending is all electronic. All they do is they transfer money to and from banks and various accounts at the Federal Reserve. Uh, a government that controls its own currency can never go bankrupt. It can pay any amount of interest on its bonds through keystrokes. No money needs to be taken out of tax revenue to pay the interest on the debt. And that's fascinating. Fascinating. Now, here's where the constraint comes in. This is where we understand that this is not just an open-ended, wild system of just of printing money as much as you want. Right. This, goes in the dis this is the disingenuous thing, too. Another disingenuous, right? Because this would be the argument from the right. What, you can just print money? You can just make as much money as you want? No, we're not fucking no. saying that. Stop it, stop it, stop it. Yeah, I mean, what it is is that, you know, if, if you print too much money, you're printing more currency than you have resources, okay? And that is the constraint. Your constraint in the economy is the total available resources, both material and personnel and inflation. Once you've hired everyone, once you're at 0% unemployment and you have already contracted for all the resources available in the economy, now you can't, if you print one more dollar, that creates inflation because now you've got people engaging in bidding wars to buy goods that are all spoken for and to mm -hmm. hire people who are all, so then you get upward pressure, inflationary pressures. But, okay, what that means is the government can always buy, afford to buy 100% of everything for sale. If there are people unemployed, the government can always afford to hire them, right? Now, there are political constraints. Mm -hmm. After the financial crisis in 2008, Obama could not spend enough to get to full employment because congressional Republicans would not allow it. 
They claimed that if we did that, we would have to borrow the money from China or that the spending would create hyperinflation, but this was all completely false. So I'll get a bit more into this later, into the China question with regard to debt, but what we need to understand is that the sole purpose of fiscal conservatism is to maintain wealth for the wealthy and to create austerity for the rest of us by scaring people into thinking that if we spend too much, we will go bankrupt. And we know bankruptcy is impossible for any nation with the power to issue its own currency. The government can't run out of money if it manages it properly and keeps the budgets in balance with the available resources. This is real budget balancing, folks. Don't issue more currency than you have resources. There you go. There you go. And um, you know, I, I, I hate to keep uh, hitting this the, the, the <laughs> same, you know, the, the the same playing the same record over and over again, man. But this is what is so disingenuous um, coming out of the right. We like, we talk about this on the show all the time. We are going to do a series in the in the future where we're going to talk a lot about uh, sort of the just get back to like the real current seed kernels mm-hmm. of conservatism and and why we on this show take the position that it is nothing but defense of hierarchy and power. Um, but that's exactly what this is. That's you just read you, like right. You just said exactly mm-hmm. what the co- entire conservative movement is. You can dress it up however you want. You could talk about individual freedoms. That's the libertarian approach to it. You can talk to it about in, in terms of morals, which is how the, the religious right talks about it. But it's always the fucking same. And that is we have a small group of people that has a disproportionate amount of power and influence and money. And therefore, we want to defend that at all costs. And we'll come up with any justification for that. Any justification. And any so- justification. We have to look at what the opportunity cost of this really is. So Mm -hmm. what is the cost of not fully implementing modern monetary theory? And it is the lost opportunity of spare economic capacity. Mm. And right now today in the US, we know that there are a ton of people out of work. And there's a ton of companies that are that have shut down and are not producing what they could be producing because of lack of demand. So we know that there's sufficient, what that's called is resource slack. Mm-hmm. And we could dramatically increase government spending by creating money with keystrokes, okay, and using it to put people to work. And the old thinking about this was that the unemployment rate should stay above 6%. But what you're doing with that is you're essentially giving all the power to the corporations, right? Because the more people who are looking for work, the more you can you can grind them down on wages and, and everything else. So um, we actually, in, in, in the most recent economy before COVID, are, are we, you know, we had years of, of, of unemployment rates closer to three and a half or 4%. And, you know, but what that doesn't count is that there are people who are out of the labor force permanently, something like 12 or 15 million people, even before COVID, they would take a full-time job if it were offered to them. So yeah. a, a jobs guarantee program, it would offer a, a federal job to anyone who wanted to work at, say, $15 an hour. And the criticism of this is that private employers wouldn't be able to compete with $15 an hour. Well, if you phase in the job guarantee along with a higher minimum wage at the same time, then you don't have that problem, right? Exactly. So MMT, it doesn't say anything about universal basic income, although certainly knowing that the government could create as much money as needed could go a long way toward answering the how are we going to pay for it question of the objections to UBI. So 
We're going to try to find someone in the future because this isn't the last time we're going to talk about modern monetary theory, folks. This is mm-hmm. this we're going to be on about this, you know, from now on because this is a it's such a revolutionary idea. We need to put together modern monetary theory with universal basic income because yeah. if you look at our, where the technology is taking us and and we we are going to see shrinking demand for labor going forward. Yeah. So, yeah. um for for right now the best Thing that we could hope for uh, would be a federal jobs guarantee. It's a lot easier politically to sell that than to pay people for sitting around doing nothing. Yep. And so if we did have a federal jobs guarantee, more employment, it means more people getting paychecks, which creates higher consumer demand leading to economic growth. And this is the same policy that a, a, a standard Keynesian demand side economics, which has been proven to work over and over again, while the Austrian school supply side austerity has been proven to be an abject failure for for at least 50 years. It's only benefited the wealthy and it has stifled the consumer economy. Yeah, it's completely ideological, the entire, right? The, it's trickle-down economics, right? It's 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 a combination of that and austerity. Um, and I, I want to just jump back to the federal jobs guarantee. I think that is such a fucking good idea for the reasons that you said, both because it's political, mainly because it's politically feasible, um, right? And what you're doing, is, it's kind of like phasing in um, universal health care via mm-hmm. Obamacare, which is not the best way to do, which is, Obamacare is obviously not the best way to do universal health care, but it's palatable, right? Because it's still, it's palatable to people who are slow to change and don't like change. In the same way, you can do this with a federal jobs guarantee because then you don't you're not attacking people's uh, obsession with the Puritan work ethic and sort of uh, their, uh, you know, moral hazard, you know, sort of uh, objections. And so but you're still saying, like, look, don't you think everybody should be working? So, right. Of course, that's your entire philosophy. Right. You love work. You think there's value in work. So here, here's a fucking job. And by the way, now you don't have to go through the suffering of not being able to find a job. And I think that also another way you can sell this is. The way that it puts pressure on corporations because people don't like big corporations typically mm-hmm. like Ab- joe schmo doesn't like big corporations right they hate them in fact so you're like look mm-hmm. this will pressure this will pressure uh the same thing the public option by the way in obamacare it's the same thing you're pressuring uh you're pressuring uh private industries to make changes by government action which interestingly yeah. loops right back to taxation well, they're, you know, and they're not going to look, the bootlickers always come out in these situations because, because even though a lot of people don't like corporations, you'll have people defending them and saying, well, if corporations have to pay higher wages, that's going to cost us higher prices. And so it doesn't do any, any good to do that. And so there are plenty of people who are carrying water for the corporations. And oh, the yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's there's no shortage of those guys. There's no shortage of those guys. It's, you know, it's like the, it's really the don't tread on me snake, but actually it's oh, yeah. the, the snake is licking a boot, to be honest. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Ugh, gross. Well, so, okay, let, let's go back. Let's go back a little bit to first principles and why, okay, this whole idea about the, the barter system and, and mm. all of that, that it really resists the doing the right thing and, and getting to a place of full employment and maximum economic growth. And we see that Republicans are, have generally been okay with using monetary policy, which is setting interest rates mm-hmm. and controlling the money supply, but it's really weak. I mean, you can lower interest rates to zero and it won't help an economy that is starved of spending. It's like right. pushing we're, we're on- seeing a- that, We're seeing that right now, right? We're seeing that right now. Like right, uh, interest rates have been, have been so low for years and there's mm-hmm. only so much you can tool around with that in a way that's useful. 
it's not helping poor people. It's it's no. Because what it does is it creates this, you know, especially when you do quantitative easing, okay, mm -hmm. you're transferring money uh, that is now available to buy stocks. And so you get, you get uh, the stocks are soaring and, you know, Main Street is suffering because there's not enough demand. Sure. So um, it's pushing on a string when you, when you use monetary policy. So, you know, businesses, in order to invest, they have to see profitability in the future, which depends on demand. And that's regardless of how low interest rates go. You can have interest rates at zero. And if a company doesn't see demand, they're not going to expand. Right. So uh, it, it, this all this does is drive up asset prices and it doesn't deliver any help to the jobless. And, you know, we could even be going in the wrong direction. Do we, do we really want a 30,000 stock market right now? Who is that too, helping? It's too much. You know, you, you see the situation where during COVID, when the economic activity is down, you know, 20, 30%, that suddenly these billionaires have gotten, you know, trillions of dollars richer in, exactly. in the same year. Why? Okay, this is, this is bad monetary policy. Now, but if we used spending and taxes, we stimulate demand and fiscal policy. This is what that's called. Uh, taxes and spending. Fiscal policy works. And- mm -hmm. We're unable to use that tool because Republicans block it. So what we ideally would, if we wanted to comply with modern monetary theory, we would create what's called automatic stabilizers. And because discretion in terms of the economy, it takes time. If the Federal Reserve Board can't do it by itself, if it requires Congress, it ain't getting done. Nope. You know, and, and, and sometimes it might, you know, if there's a change in administration, you know, it might, you might actually be able to do some things to fix the economy. But if you don't have both houses of Congress, you have divided government, then, you know, you don't get action. So we want automatic stabilizers built into the system that are independent of politics. And what are some of those things? Well, the job guarantee is an automatic stabilizer because when unemployment goes up, you automatically spend money to hire those people. Mm -hmm. Instead of just giving them temporary unemployment that runs out, you just give them a job. And then when the economy develops again, you start cutting back on the number of federal jobs and people go back to the private sector. It's really fucking simple. Yeah. So, you know, progressive income taxes are another automatic stabilizer because what that means is that as you're as the as you make more money, your rates go up. So the government tax collections are helping to buffer the inflation of an economic expansion. It's it all makes perfect sense. But again, Republicans get in the way and block this stuff every time. Yeah, every time. And 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 this and I'm going to keep making this point, and that is it gets back to this moral hazard question and these I and moral hazard question, just these these ideas of uh, of 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 deserving people versus non-deserving people. And and this idea that and this lie, frankly, that there is nothing that that, that nothing that government can do well and that um, and that uh, at any time that you try to mess with the market or you try to control the, the economy that uh, that you will that you will have unintended outcomes or bad outcomes. And, um, that, you know, there is some truth to that, I guess. But the bottom line is that all of that is just a a, a, a vehicle for for maintaining the status quo right i mean it's always the same argument defensive hierarchy defensive power defense of defensive minority rule it's always the same fucking thing repackaged different language for different eras but it's always the same 
Yeah, and of course there can be unintended consequences, right? Of course you, there can be. You can overcorrect. It's like it's like if you're steering a car, you could overcorrect and then crash, but mm -hmm. you try not to do that. And 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 you so, get better at it over time, right? You get better at it as you with practice, right? You get better at it. You but you get. In fact, in terms of driving cars, we develop an entire manual to learn, so people learn how to drive a car properly and not make those kinds of mistakes. Certainly, those mistakes still kind of still, still happen all the time, but we're able to correct for them. And you could do the same thing, right? You develop a, you over time you develop a a a a a, a, a stable a, a of 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 knowledge and experience right and and you're able to sort of work with this and sort of do these course corrections in a way that is useful and helpful it doesn't have to be the wild west no and you don't stop people from driving cars because somebody could possibly overcorrect right right exactly <laughs> so it's a bad it, it's a it's a false choice right it's a bad it's it's not it doesn't have to be that way no i mean and what it comes down to is that one party just doesn't want the nation to be successful when you get right yeah, down to it exactly it's, it's you know and, and we've seen this we've every time a republican gets in office we end up with a, an economic disaster at the end of it always always every goddamn time so I want to go back again to I mean, we're going to keep we're, we keep this is all very repetitive because we can't say these things enough. Mm -hmm. And this is another angle about money always involving debt. There can't be debt free money because government issuance of currency always comes with a promise to take back the currency as payment. You know what right. I already mentioned, a paper note says this is legal tender for all debts, public and private. Therefore, Bitcoin can never be money. Nope. What is Bitcoin? It's like a stock. Okay. It's it's essentially a stock that's freely trading on the market, but it's a company that doesn't have a product. <laughs> the government does not accept Bitcoin as payment. You have to you have to convert your Bitcoin to dollars to pay your taxes on Bitcoin. You know. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Bitcoin also tries to function as a commodity in the sense that it's convertible to dollars by other people who want to buy Bitcoin, but the value is completely floating on the market, just like a stock or commodity. And sure. unlike a stock, there's no price earnings ratio because Bitcoin doesn't produce anything. So, you know, and, and unlike a commodity, if you have gold or oil or pork bellies, if you can't sell it, you could at least consume it. <laughs> right, exactly. You Bitcoin, can't do shit with your Bitcoin. <laughs> you can't. It's just it's it's useless. Um, you know, like it's electronic money, just like government electronic money, but you can't redeem it. So yeah, um, this is why it can it it you know and and the the modern monetary guys, by the way, I mean they they just hate Bitcoin mm -hmm. because it completely it's it's and here's where it came from this is this is why there's a philosophy behind bitcoin and it's coming from the same people who like the gold standard okay yeah, you I, you know it of course it is it, it came into being as a result of these internet libertarians who ultimately believe in getting rid of fiat currencies because they don't like the power of money creation being in the hands of governments and the inventor was a guy named satoshi nakamoto he uh, but this is widely considered not to have been a real guy just a pseudonym <laughs> Whoever created it, they wanted to be sure that only a limited number of Bitcoins would ever be created. So they came up with an algorithm. It required massive computing power to mine the Bitcoin. And by the way, in it takes a massive amount of electricity and produces a massive amount of carbon emissions. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this is like, this is bad multiple ways. This is not just, uh, you know, bad money. It's bad. It's bad for the world. 
Um, so anyway, it's limited to 20 million coins ever. And a lot of those coins, you know, when Bitcoin was kind of a fad in the beginning, it, it, a lot of people just lost their keys. They, they've, they've got Bitcoin sitting around on hard drives that they can't get to because they don't have their, their keys or they lost their computer or they threw their laptop away or whatever, or got stolen. And, you know, <laughs> oh, no, I find that so fucking funny. You fucking idiots. <laughs> it is. It, it is. And, you know, right now it's crazy because the current value of a Bitcoin is twenty nine thousand dollars. Okay, so all the Bitcoin in circulation is about half a trillion dollars. It's it's a lot of money, but because it's not tied to a central bank promise to pay, the value fluctuates like it's up 20 percent in the past week, but it can go down. And, you know, it it is probably going to keep going up because there's only a limited amount and people like to trade this stuff because you can spend it anonymously, you know, Uh and so it facilitates guess what? Organized crime. People who don't Mm -hmm. want to be, have money traced can trade Bitcoin. And, you know, it's kind of impressive that, you know, some libertarians effectively worthless concept of money has become about half as valuable as Apple. All right. Insane. It it, it is insane, but you know, because unlike government, when a government issues a dollar, okay. uh, They're, they're promising to take it back, but the person who spends a Bitcoin when they mine a Bitcoin, they create it from nothing, and then they spend it. They're not promising to take that back later, right? They get the dollars, and they and and that's it. You know, they 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 don't ever have to buy that coin back again. And so, you know, it just like can't. You said be- it's a it's a commodity, right? It's it's it, and that's that's what we're we keep hammering away here is that money is not a commodity itself, right? Real money, right? Uh, while Bitcoin is just a commodity, you know, just like anything else. Yeah, it is, and and so. It can't ever be money. And what's interesting is that is that uh, cryptocurrencies probably do have a major future in terms of mm-hmm. central central bank money because there's something called blockchain that cryptocurrencies use, which is that every transaction is is kept track of in a long chain, and so there's a permanent record of every transaction that's ever occurred with that currency. And it's it's very useful for banking, actually, because it, it's kind of like a built-in accounting system. And mm-hmm. it, it, it looks like right now China has been working on this for about five years. They're getting ready to release a, a, a cryptocurrency, a digital, a digital uh, uh, currency. And that's something that it could be huge. I mean, this is actually could be a threat to the dollar because right now the dollar is the world's reserve currency. But if China makes a, a really good cryptocurrency that starts getting adopted around the world, it could challenge the dollar for global supremacy. So that's something we, we need to watch that space. Yeah, for sure. And this is one of these things that, you know, I think it's it's asymmetric warfare on, on the sense of uh, China, right? Like I, I would, I would, I spent the last a couple, a day or two, uh, watching uh, this show about tanks. Uh, mm-hmm. This is neither here nor there, but it's absolutely fascinating the evolution of tanks and like you know over the course of the 20, 20th century, et cetera. Um, but the bottom line is, is that it, the, the, there was a there was a question 
um, going into the 21st century, whether, you know, whether it is even makes sense to have tanks anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, because in urban warfare, you can really defeat a tank with an RPG because a tank mm -hmm. can't maneuver. Right. It has it, it can't maneuver fast enough in that environment. Right. It can't. And tanks and a lot of times, which I thought was fascinating, a tank round needs something like a like a thousand or maybe like a, like 200 meters or 300 mm -hmm. meters before it can it, 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 it arms. Right. So if there's a tank that's like you turn a corner and oh, shit, there's a tank. Tank, you know, mm -hmm. your round that can't even can't even uh, the, the round that might be that that might be an armor defeating round will won't detonate in time. It'll just bounce mm -hmm. off the tank. So anyway, that's neither here nor there. My point was that the asymmetric warfare element of this and that is that like China is 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 knows that you can't go toe to toe right with with, with with the United States and it's not desirable to even but you can still uh because of our connection to, to China but you can definitely uh uh sort of take over the global uh, uh, uh the global be the global superpower slowly this way cryptocurrency mm -hmm. uh you know being the uh coming out with a with a different vaccine right that can mm -hmm. go that might be cheaper and that you can go to do that can go into Africa right they, they they've invested heavily in Africa infrastructure in Africa they're like mm -hmm. look we'll come and take your diamonds we'll We'll buy we'll, we'll build you a dam and everything you want roads highways but we're going to take your diamonds right this is and this is what this is the way china gets to chip away in a way that the soviet union and the uh, tried to go toe to toe and lost with the united states china is a little more savvy in this way that that's a little bit something scary for us to think about china has like eight times as many people as the soviet union they have about five times as many people as we do and they are fucking smart. They've been doing this about, <laughs> yeah. they've been doing this civilization thing about 4,000 years. And we, you know, we're just, we're, we are so out um, maneuvered by them. And oh, every time, especially if we don't use modern monetary theory, modern monetary theory can make us competitive with China. But every year that goes by where we don't use this, it, you know, we don't invest in full employment and, and maximizing our opportunity in the economy, we're just falling further and further behind. Yep. Yep. So now I have like, I, I want to say one more time that this is a hard constraint. The capacity of the economy is a hard constraint on spending. And so, mm -hmm. you know, you can't spend without limit. You have to have a well-considered budget as well. You know, you, 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 you can't spend money on the wrong things. You know, are, are you, are, are you, you know, are you giving the money to fat cats? Are you spending it on fossil fuel subsidies? Are you, you know, there's lots of things that the government could spend money on that are actually counterproductive. So mm. it's, this is not just a matter of opening the checkbook. This needs good, sound technocratic management. And here's how it works. Let's go back to the World War II thing and discuss how, how the U.S. managed being able to borrow that much money without inflation. And mm. what it basically means is that the government has to impose limits on what the private sector can do. If, you, if, you, if it wants to spend, you know, to shift all of its production like it did 50% of GDP went toward the war effort in World War II. And if you want to do that, you're going to have to curtail some private sector activity. And so, you know, what they did, for example, is they, there was rationing, rationing coupons. You can only buy so, so many products. They stopped selling new cars. There were no new cars produced in the U.S. during World War II. And, and they, 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 on February 22nd, 1942, they basically just said, nope, we're sh shifting all these car factories over to building tanks and planes. And that was the Defense Production Act. So by doing that, they curtailed private consumption. And so that is how you borrow a ton of money and 
don't have inflation. You have to curtail private consumption. Now, again, right-wingers hate this because they're like, you know, I want to go bail to buy a new truck. You can't. If you have a national crisis, you have to sacrifice. And this, this, is, is, this, is, this is something that is, we're watching this now with the COVID-19 phenomenon, right? It's something that is like really, really hard for, for conservatives to wrap their minds around. They can't. And, you know, so right now we're, we're, we're sitting around, um, before COVID, we were at like 5 to 10% of GDP and annual deficits. And so we were we were in deficit spending around one to one and a half trillion dollars range per year, but we still had no inflation. All right. Mm -hmm. And so this completely blows the Austrian economics out of the water. And furthermore, Republicans are hypocrites because they did this under Trump. They cut taxes on the wealthy and they engaged in a trillion to a trillion and a half per year deficits. And these are supposedly these deficit hawk Republicans. I mean, they just suck. Bad faith, bad faith, dude. You know it. Bad fucking faith. Yeah. So, I mean, and our next big challenge, uh, other than COVID, is that, you know, by the way, for COVID, we should have been sending everybody two thousand dollar checks every month. Yep. From the beginning, and we and, from the and beginning. Had we done that, our economy would be in great shape right now. We might not have a thirty uh, trillion or thirty thousand stock market, but we would have full employment. Exactly. Okay. So. We know why this was done. It's all done to preserve wealth and income inequality. But so looking at looking at after COVID, our next big challenge is the Green New Deal and climate change. Mm -hmm. And we can fix the climate for about 5% of GDP. World War II cost us 50% of GDP. So we only have to do a tenth as much of shifting of resources from private to public sector. Okay. It's something that's really eminently affordable. We can do this, but now uh, Republicans, there's cry screaming that this is just socialism and it's going to destroy America. You know, uh, I want to do a future show on the prospects of the Green New Deal because I think it's mm -hmm. really important. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So this gets into the idea of central planning. That is the uh, another boogeyman of Austrian, econ you know, Austrian economics. They just hate the idea that people just can't do whatever they want, that there would be any government planning. And the, the point here is that there is no such thing as laissez-faire economics in the real mm -hmm. world. Every part of our economy is planned by congressional budgets. It's a question of who's doing the planning, whether or not the planning is for public benefit. We believe that economies should be planned to produce the best outcomes for the people. And that means using government spending to ensure full employment and maximum productivity. Yeah. And, and again, this goes back to the whole disingenuous thing, right? Because um, you, know, you speak out, Republicans will speak out of, uh, and libertarians, frankly, uh, out of one side of their mouth talking about, uh, you know, uh, central planning is so evil and God forbid, blah, blah, blah. but like, no, it, it's we, the government, like you're saying, the government is absolutely tuned to help some people. It's just a question of who we decide to tune it to help. Right. Um, and right now, and historically, it's not been tuned in a way that is equitable at all. And so the, the 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 lie is that oh no we just want laissez faire you know, the, the invisible hand of the market blah, blah, blah. like no that's a lie you also vote for <laughs> the you vote for fossil fuel subsidies every fucking year right mm -hmm. the farm bill passes every year the defense spending act pays every year right with these with 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 cushy uh, cushy contracts that go out so please please 
stop that. Just stop it. We can have a debate about how we should plan the economy, but let's not pretend that you don't want to plan the economy. No, it's all. I mean, frankly, our all of our current budgets, including under Trump, are just massive socialism. Okay, yes. for for the wealthy, for of farmers, course. for the military, for all Always. of the groups that 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 he favors, which is ends up you know being white people. Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> every um, time. Okay, so another another giant boogeyman that libertarians always use is hyperinflation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's extremely rare, if not non-existent, in any kind of modern economy. Inflation is only caused by deficit spending if that spending exceeds the available economic resources. Okay, we'll take a look at three historical cases that they always throw out there. Uh, the first one is the Weimar Republic. Uh, the Weimar Republic got into hyperinflation because it was forced to pay large war reparations from World War One, And this was, by the way, predicted in advance by John Maynard Keynes at the time that Germany would not be able to pay that level of war reparations and survive. Uh, and the other problem with it is it wasn't paying these war, rep- war reparations in its own currency. Mm. So it had to buy foreign currency, right? And so what that meant is that it was having to buy so much foreign currency that it couldn't meet its own economic needs. So it began to print money more money than it had resources. And so what the, what happened is is that it, it, that the the value of uh, of the Deutsche Mark at that point was being decimated like every 3 months to the right. point where tax collections couldn't keep up because you know you're paying your taxes once a year and meanwhile you've got you know you've got your value devaluing by tenfold every 3 months. All right? So there's no way to catch up and they eventually their currency collapsed. Then you had Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe undertook a land reform program where it gave land back to black farmers, but they couldn't transition quickly enough. And so their food production collapsed. And again, they were out of resources. They tried to print money to, to fix the problem. They couldn't create more food. So, you know, their currency collapsed. And Venezuela was a similar situation. They had for a while, they were getting a lot of, of dollars in exchange for oil. Uh, once their oil industry collapsed, then they could no longer pay their bills. And they had a lot of foreign currency debt. And it was just like the Weimar Republic. They, they, they needed to get food for their people. They couldn't do it. They tried to print dollars or print uh, their currency and their currency collapsed. So, you know, all three of these failed the primary modern monetary theory requirement of keeping the money supply in balance with resources. And so that's the only problem and the only thing that leads to hyperinflation. It d- does not come from deficits. It, you, a country has to be desperate in order to, it, to, to suffer hyperinflation. So um, other than World War II, the US economy has never been close to 100% capacity. There's always been room to grow by raising employment through spending. And the irrational fear of hyperinflation has created this long history of years, decades of incredible lost opportunity. And that's the opportunity cost of fiscal conservatism. Yeah. And and we say on the show all the time that if you are on the conservative side of things, all you really have to do is muddy the waters, right? Because your entire goal is to not let the country progress towards something that is better for everyone, right? That is your entire goal. So if you want, and and, and it's, it's so much harder to build something new than it is to destroy something that already exists. So all you have to just keep saying is Venezuela, 
Venezuela, Venezuela. And, 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 you know, and people don't want to think hard about why Venezuela, uh, an economy collapses like in Venezuela. So you just slap socialism on it. And yeah. now that's just a boogeyman and you can just beat that straw man to death. Yeah, it's and it's really this is this is criminal. This is a moral issue. This is the biggest. Moral it is a moral issue. issue. It is of a moral time. issue. You know, it would be it would be as if uh, again you've you've got the criminals in charge and and they are they are blocking millions of Americans from realizing their potential. Exactly, and 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 meanwhile, convincing those same Americans that they are somehow winning under this system as it exists now, or even if they're not winning. That there's something I don't know that they're that they're doing the right thing or they're being they're behaving morally uh, right because you, you think about these people who are dying in hospital beds and still yelling at the uh, it, 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 with COVID nineteen mm-hmm. uh, and their own fluids and and still yelling at the uh, nurses and saying you know uh, COVID nineteen is not real right these are the people that are dying and don't have health insurance but refuse to uh, refuse. Obamacare. So -hmm. it's like this idea that like, no, even if I'm suffering, and this is a very religious thing, right? There's something, Mm -hmm. something holy about the fact that I'm suffering nobility because I'm, I'm sticking to my, to to some sort of abstract principle. Yeah. And it's the, it's really the, the, the conflict that really started out our whole show is talking about deontology versus utilitarianism. Exactly. Exactly. That's like at the core of it in a lot of ways. So there's an international component to modern monetary theory. And that is the idea that there's a relationship between your government deficit and your trade deficit. And we have Mm. to talk about this because of the, you know, this, this huge boogeyman that's been made by uh, Trump about China and about our trade deficits. And what a trade deficit means is that some of the money that the government has issued has left the country. It can no longer be spent within the country to purchase goods or services or add to price inflation. It can also never be reclaimed by the government in the form of taxation. So this means that so long as there is spare capacity in the economy, the government can spend more money domestically than it could if there was no trade deficit without triggering inflation. Does Mm. that make sense? It makes sense to me. You've shipped, you know, X number of trillions of dollars over to China. So you have less money in our economy now, right? So if you're running that kind of trade deficit, you need, the government needs to create more money injected into the economy. China, on the other hand, can run a balanced budget because its economy is already running flat out for export and it has a huge trade surplus Mm -hmm. with the US and with the rest of the world, right? So it's already at full employment. It doesn't need to run budget deficits, okay? A nation like the US though, has this sizable trade deficit. And so it's, it's very interesting that if we were to reduce our trade deficit, it would actually hurt us, okay? Because- if we started suddenly bringing uh, manufacturing back, it would cost us a lot more to make those products because of our higher labor and materials costs, right? So it would be inflationary and, and it, would, it would take us a long time to dig out of that hole. And so, so trade with China is a really good thing because we get this amazing source of cheap goods that we've now gotten used to. So people in America, whatever their wages are, they can buy more with their money. And so you know, and it also, it again, frees up the government to be able to put additional money into our economy. Eventually, by the way, if we got to full employment and we spent the money we needed, we might start to erase that trade deficit in a way that wouldn't be harmful. Right, right. Without, not do, without not doing it on this idea, like this sort of abstract idea, but doing it for, for, for a practical reason, not just because 
you know, we should just eliminate deficits. Right. And so you understand there's this, there's this, you know, there's this connection between what the government's doing in terms of spending and the overall economy. And you need a big government to, to run capitalism efficiency efficiently. Um, you know, Mexico is government. They're only about 25% of the economy. Ours is 34% and we're more prosperous. There's mm -hmm. a connection to that. And France has a government that's 55% of its economy and it was doing very well, but now it's struggling since it gave up its currency control. So, mm -hmm. you know, on the other hand, medieval European governments, by contrast, were tiny and people suffered accordingly because their economies didn't work. And this is what small government libertarians want to drive us back to is some kind of medieval feudalism. It's just the inevitable outcome. You know, right. like what I mean, what else happens? I mean, like if if there is no government to control the interests of power, a power, powerful interests, this is the and this I I keep I always talk about Du Bois, but right the 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 planter economy of the South, mm -hmm. the American South was the quintessential example of it. Right, it was essentially uh, a it was beyond aristocracy. These people were essentially kings. I mean, they did they weren't really beholden to the government at all. There really was no central authority within each one of those states. So it was really just each individual. It was a libertarian paradise. It was a libertarian paradise. Um, and 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 people suffered. Sean, people suffered. People were ignorant. Uh, people were desperately poor. I'm not just talking about black. In a lot of ways, enslaved Africans were better off. At least they had jobs, right? right. They didn't have freedom. But they had food, they had shelter, they had a job, right? Whereas mm -hmm. poor whites in that exact same environment were starving, right. and they were and they were uneducated. And because if you couldn't get a job um, on living on a plantation, and why would they want to, to pay you when they have a free labor, free slave? Yeah, yeah. You know, no, no, it's true. And if you look at the if you look at the government of the Confederacy and even their buildings, it was a joke. Okay. Like, oh yeah, a complete fucking joke. They had they had just no. They were they were they were dirt poor. And that's mm -hmm. that's the problem. The South was dirt poor, and and so it really couldn't create a large government uh, to compete with the North, and that's why it ultimately lost. Yep, yep. And that's a really great point, right? In in just why it is so important to have a powerful central authority, right? If nothing else, it's a backstop, right? It's a safety net. It means that when the end, when private individuals fail, private private systems collapse. Mm -hmm. There is something there. That's so that the so the entire civilization doesn't fall apart. And literally, that is what happened in the South. The entire civilization fell apart when one little thing was removed, i.e., mm -hmm. the entire the, 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 the system of their economy was removed, the entire thing fell apart because there was nothing there as a backstop. And that's right. setting aside the fucking moral abhorrence of the whole thing. Slavery, I mean, yeah, yeah. Pure, uh, we're, talk, we're talking about purely in terms of economics and government right now. Well, that's even you know Du Bois talks about this in that book is is mm -hmm. how much how much uh, slavery was an inferior economic system. Yes, it was a bad system, and that's what's so funny, Sean, because we're talking about a bad system right now, right? But it's a bad system because powerful people are benefiting from that system, and they want it to stay that way. It's not because it's what's best or what's most efficient or what's most useful. And we are talking about the system that is that can get us to a place we are more efficient, right? We are running, uh, we are running. Um, a, a country in a way that benefits everybody. But again, if you are powerful, if you are a, a Southern planter or you mm -hmm. are a modern capitalist, you know, you don't want that. You literally don't want that to happen. You want things to remain unequal and, and, and for people to be suffering. Right. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of intent and planning 
in the way that things are today. And we have, mm -hmm. we can never forget that. Never forget that. So let's talk about the long-term solvency of programs like social security, because it's, it's like, just imagine, okay, if we had all everyone's retirement funds invested in the stock market, and then you try to retire like after 2008, right? Right. Jesus. So you, you're, you need that backstop of government. And the good news is with modern monetary theory is that we will always have that. As long as we have a competent government in charge, we don't need to raise payroll taxes to fully fund Social Security. We don't need to cut benefits. We don't need to raise the retirement age. We don't need to privatize it. We don't need to have this concept of intergenerational warfare where Republicans are telling young people their taxes are going to be raised through the roof because there's too many old people. Mm -hmm. It's all a bunch of fucking nonsense yep. because the government will always have the money to fund Social Security payments, just as it will always have the money to pay its debts. The biggest risk to future retirees is that we won't spend enough now due to political constraints to expand our productive capacity sufficiently so that we can fund people's retirement in the future without creating inflation. Yeah. And so the entire conservative lie there is premised on the idea that we started at the very earlier in the show. And that is that, you know, that that there is some sort of finite the government th that the government operates like a, like a household, right? Like that there mm -hmm. is a certain amount of money and we can only allocate it X, Y and Z ways. And of course, like we said, there are there are constraints on that spending. But 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 the but the lie is that oh no, we only have so many coins in our bucket. And so therefore mm -hmm. we can only allocate X, Y to X to this and, and Y to that. So bullshit. Yeah. And so this brings me to my next section, which is, uh, this is, this is short. We're almost, we're almost through this, but I think it's important because Stephanie Kelton is the, is the one who actually became Bernie Sanders advisor mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. her premise here. It's real. This is really smart. She says deficits save the world. And it's really fucking profound, okay? Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love that, man. That's like right poke right in the eye of the libertarian. <laughs> because when the economy gets weak, deficits automatically go up because people are paying less taxes. And spending to support the unemployed automatically goes up. So uh, every single time this happens, a lot of economists panic and they start screaming about the deficits. And they often try to take steps immediately to impose austerity just when we need to do the opposite. So... Uh, we never actually fully used the government's fiscal capacity after the 2008 crisis. Uh, there was stimulus. It wasn't nearly enough. We suffered years of unnecessary unemployment and misery, which actually, frankly, increased the frustrations of many Americans, directly led to the election of President Trump. As in Weimar, Germany, failure to manage the economy properly can drive people toward desperation and a nation toward fascism. Absolutely. Absolutely. And guess who doesn't care about that? The people at the top of corporations, they're going to make money anyway. They will. Doesn't and matter. so if doesn't you think matter. about if you think about the, this uh, about poverty and desperation being planned, it's like now you have a motive. You, you drive people into the arms of a demagogue, dem demagogue. you drive them crazy. Mm -hmm. People start believing insane things when they're starving. 
It's you know? crazy. We're watching this in real time, Sean. <laughs> We're watching this happen in real time. We're watching people. People are looking for answers, right? The mm-hmm. Trump supporter is looking for answers when he sees his, uh, like, right, he, and uh, when he sees his livelihood being, uh, when he's being squeezed, he's being squeezed, and his father was squeezed, and his and and his kids are going to be squeezed, and he's and he doesn't have health care, and he has all these batshit terrible ideas of why those that is happening. Because he's because he's fed exactly those batshit ideas by these sort of people that are in power. Fox News, Trump, mm-hmm. China, China is taking China, all your money. China. Exactly, exactly. But remember, in twenty sixteen, it was immigrants. I don't know. Suddenly, that sort of went on the back burner. Like immigrants yeah. were just no longer an issue. I don't know why. Because and it just goes to show how they never were the problem, right? Because. Uh, Immigration, that was was obviously never the problem because nothing's really changed. I mean, there's a few more miles of border wall and there were some horrible, horrible practices at the border, but mostly it hasn't changed. But now the narrative has changed and nobody cares about fucking immigrants anymore. Now it's about China and it's about COVID-19 and it's about masks and about freedom and whatever the fuck else. It's just an outrage machine that, you know, skips yep. a, it just jumps around, you know, at some point in the future, as soon as Biden gets in and tries to reform immigration, suddenly oh, they'll be gonna, right back, be right back. You there'll know? be a horde. There'll be there'll be a there'll be a horde of uh, of, uh, of, uh, of people from South America again. Right. Remember the migrant yep. train or whatever yep. that shit was. There'll be another one as soon as Biden starts to talk about immigration. Yeah. And so, you know, this this is really. We have to take it back again to first principles because this idea about the danger of deficits, it, it's deeply entrenched on both the right and the left. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. they have all sorts of pretexts, but it still goes back to this biblical idea of debt as sin and payment as redemption. And in a way, modern monetary theory's rejection of the morality-based view of money is incredibly and radically secular. Fuck yeah. It's right up our alley. So right up our alley, man. <laughs> um, religion even poisons economics. Who knew? Exactly. You can, it, it really does poison everything, everything, everything. Uh, with all due respect to Christopher Hitchens, who we miss every day. Dearly. Um, okay. So deficit hawks, they want the be- budget balanced now and always. No matter what's going on, they want a balanced budget. Okay, and there's the other camp of deficit doves who are mostly Democrats. They want to see a a Keynesian stimulus only when the economy is weak. Like Mm -hmm. so during COVID. Yeah, they'll sign on to checks. But in normal times, not even Democrats want to send people free money. You know, they want to balance the budget, too. And so Stephanie Kelton says she coined a term called deficit owls. They are the third camp. Owls are smarter. They believe fiscal policy should not be a breaking a break glass in case of fire solution only to be used during crises. Fiscal policy should always be oriented toward economic goals, mission-oriented budgets, full employment, etc. So the conversations usually go something like this. We should be doing X for the economy to solve a problem like hunger or climate change or poverty. And the immediate pushback, and you hear this all the time, it makes me ill. How are you going to pay for it? Uh, uh, so much so that right, I remember... One thing that Hillary Clinton did and also uh, uh, which conservatives never do and they pretend to. And then also uh, Elizabeth Warren did mm-hmm. this like she's their, their entire thing is like they have a plan for that. Right. Because they know mm-hmm. this question's coming. They know this question's coming. How are you going to pay for it? And they said, here is how I'm going to pay for it. But again, 
this shows that even on the left, this idea has been sort of, it's just, it is, we are steeped in it as a culture. They don't understand modern monetary theory. And I'm going to talk about that a a little bit later, but this whole question is, is, you know, it's false. The government does not need to find the money because the government can create as much money as it wants. And so, you know, Deficits and debts, they're, they're, they're used to say, oh, we're stealing from our children. We're mortgaging our future. And, you know, they compare debt to slavery and mm-hmm. they make it a national security threat about China. And it just goes on and on. It's, it's, people have been complaining about the debt since 1937 or even earlier when the national debt was only in the millions of dollars. And so imagine you can't it's like there's a (laughs) there's a political cartoon that she showed in her presentation and it was like the debt was like 40 million dollars and they had they had a oh and soon it's going to be 65 million you know it's like (laughs) (laughs) at the end of the reagan presidency the national debt was 1.5 trillion today at the end of the trump presidency it's 28 trillion so astonishing it doesn't matter what the number is, though. The sky is always falling. And there's a word for this that she coined. It's called nega numerophobia. I love that. It's just what it sounds like, the fear of large negative numbers. And so, you know, we need a paradigm shift desperately. Exactly, man. And this is this this is it. I mean, I love new ideas. I love fresh ideas. It's not even this new idea is not even new anymore, but uh, but it's new in terms of our government and how we think about this. And I'm really glad to see people like Bernie Sanders and AOC taking taking this stuff very, very seriously, because you're going to have to have some pretty radical voices and people like uh, this, like moderate centrists, uh, like uh, like a like a Biden or a Clinton, uh, right, are not this is not their this is not their cup of tea they haven't yet signed on to this they don't really understand it because they understand it that's right i think they don't understand i mean i think i think people are just really steeped in this sort of this very we've all been steeped in women you i mean before i read this i was right yeah you know what i'm saying and 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 so it it can really open minds if people are, are, are open to it well i can't tell you how many times i've thought to myself you know the us is never going to pay off its debt right and mm-hmm. this is something that like you know and and what about interest you know the interest mm-hmm. th- this is this is always even by democrats they talk about they say oh you know 40% of our budget is now going to interest and they you know this 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 terrible thing like we're going to we're going to run out of money and and ultimately we're going to be in a situation where the whole system is going to collapse mm-hmm. and so but no no here's what we have to say about interest large deficits and debt require large interest payments true but governments with money creation power can always afford to pay the interest without question. And what is an interest payment anyway? It's a transfer of money from the government to the private sector bondholders, mm-hmm. right? That money didn't go away. Right, right. It still exists. It went to bondholders. Okay. So who are those bondholders? They're, they're, they're you and me, they're, they're, they're companies, they're, they're sovereign wealth funds, they're pension funds. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, if interest rates get too high, it's inefficient because the government's paying for the time cost of money rather than goods or services. So modern monetary theory suggests keeping interest rates low so the government has more money to spend into the economy for real things. And so there's no problem with keeping interest rates low. I mean, if you keep them too low, like zero, it can devalue your currency if other central banks in the world are paying higher interest rates on their bonds, right? But, you know, even if you do that, devaluing a currency, it makes your exports more attractive. So there's mm. always pluses and minuses and it has to be kept in balance. And so there's a sweet spot with interest rates around 2% that modern monetary theory uh, people suggest. So 
Yeah, it's interesting. It really is interesting. And and I, what I what we keep coming back to, it sounds like, is this like this sort of balancing act, right? And this like I think it's really easy to say that like you know we should like you said we should never have like we should always be working toward a balanced budget. Like these sort of absolutes, where really we are talking about a delicate balance. It's like it's like um, I'll use the analogy of an internal combustion engine, for example, a motorcycle mm-hmm. engine, right? There's a bunch of different things that are going on in there, and any one of those things. To too much of any one of those things is bad, but there's a harmony that happens there, right? Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what we're trying to get here, a harmony. And, and a good mechanic is really, it's able to do that in a way that it, to keep that motor running. And the, I think the biggest thing we have to address here is the idea that we should, that there should be a mechanic at all. Right. That is what the that is that's what the conservatives say. No, just let it ru- just just run the engine until it runs out of oil, and then we'll deal with it when we get there. You know, that's it, and that's why I say they're living in another century. If you're yep. not if you're not taking full advantage of of modern monetary theory, you are living in another century, and exactly they are holding us back. I mean, we are we are in a Dickensian uh, nightmare right now because of of not being allowed to tune our engine properly to exactly. to succeed. Mm-hmm. So exactly. I mean, and, and if you want to talk about Scrooge, I read somewhere, it's funny, but that, <laughs> uh, I don't know, Tiny Tim or whoever it was that was, you know, uh, Bob Cratchit, who, yeah, who's, yeah. The, who's the, the the poor person in, in, in Scrooge, said they were making 15 somethings per week or whatever. And somebody somebody actually calculated what that would be in modern money. And it's like $27,000 a year, $14 an hour. And so a lot of Americans oh, are- Further in poverty than even you know the story of Scrooge. So and fucking Tiny Tim, Tiny Tim is fucking beating about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. So so okay. Now here's another boogeyman that comes up. What if China refuses to keep lending us money? Mm. Here's why that's not a problem. China, they've oriented their economy around export growth. Everything they you know they're dependent on it now. And so when they ship out exports, they get dollars in return or other currencies. But for American exports, they effectively get a checking account at the U.S. Federal Reserve. Right. That money does them no good sitting there. And they get more of it every year. So <laughs> what they do with it is they buy U.S. Treasury bonds that pay interest because otherwise the money's just sitting there. Right. And, you know, the reason they, they can't repatriate their funds without ruining their own currency. They can't. So, you know, and, and they constantly, th- these guys are no fools, okay? They, they are constantly buying and selling dollars to keep their currency exactly where they want it. But they cannot stop buying treasury bonds and they can't repatriate their money all at once. They'd have to do it slowly over time, okay? So they're going to keep buying US treasuries. It's simple, you know? So, yeah. and, and we can service their debt because it's denominated in dollars, Right. We just mark up keystrokes. We can give them as many dollars as we need to to service the interest on their debt. And, you know, everybody is happy with the arrangement. Yeah, it's really it's it's this rejection of this idea. We hear this a lot from conservatives and libertarians, obviously, most specifically, but this rejection of the idea that we are we are all we're all in a system. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, like like we like we rely on China, but China also relies on us, right? It's a, it, it, it's a symbiotic relationship and it's very anti this idea of like, you know, uh, this sort of uh, isolationist, uh, anti-globalist sort of, you know, mantra that we get on the far right. But it really is a denial in the end that we are one big system, an organism, if even, right? The economy, the right. global economy is a gigantic organism. 
Well, and you see that in this opposition to trade deals from both parties, really. Yes. Uh, yes. You Bernie know, Sanders Trump, famously, uh, by the way. Yeah. And it was one of the worst things he ever did. And stupid. And, you know, so they fucking do stupid. it because they buy into this idea that that uh, a lot of American workers have that the reason why they're out of their jobs and why they're not successful anymore is because their jobs were shipped to China or India. Right. Okay? And it's bullshit. Bullshit. All we would have to do is is create enough money in our system and those people could all have high paying jobs again. You exactly. know, and so so it's complete misdirection and it's it benefits who the usual suspects the always wealthy, the same people, the very wealthy. Mm -hmm. All right. So do we eventually have to pay off this debt? Twenty eight trillion dollars. That's a lot of fucking money. That's a that's that's over a year's worth of the entire GDP of the country. So do we eventually have to pay this off? OK, well, let's put it in terms of a thought experiment. And that is if you could wave a magic wand and eliminate the U.S. national mm. debt. Would you do it? Many people say, hell yes, they do it because debt is sinful. But you got to ask this question the other way. If you could wave a magic wand and eliminate all the U.S. Treasury bonds throughout the world, take them out of the bond funds, out of the pension funds, out of the sovereign wealth funds, out of people's, you know, people own government bonds. Would you take those bonds away from those people? A lot of people will say, hell no, or what are you even talking about? They don't even understand. They don't understand that there's a relationship between the U.S. national debt and these very highly valuable instruments called U.S. Treasury bonds. Right. You know? <laughs> they're, they're a super solid and stabilizing storehouse of value for billions of people. They're the most important instrument in the global financial system. It's remarkable, so, really. It's really remarkable. I mean, what an what an instrument, right? I mean, wow. Mm -hmm. Wow, so powerful. Yeah, and so in order to pay off this debt, we would, what we would need to do, of course, I mean, 28 trillion, okay, we would have to run budget surpluses of 5 or 10% every year for a lot of years to pay off that money, right? So it, it, it could be disastrous. And the reason we know this is because there have been seven periods in U.S. history where there was a U.S. government budget surplus. Mm, yes, I, th I love this part. Each and every time we've done this, a recession or depression has followed. You can look it up. And uh, Stephanie Kelton has this chart in her presentation, and maybe I'll post it in the show notes because it's just stunning. Okay. Most recently, we had a federal budget surplus from 1998 to 2001. And the recession of 2001 followed immediately. And then the Great Recession of 2008. So why does something that sounds so good paying off the debt end so badly every single time we do it. And here is the mind-blowing revelation here. A federal government budget surplus, which is federal black ink, leaves the private sector in deficit. Okay, so that's private red ink. It's a profound insight. How long can, now this is when we have to start talking about households and businesses, mm -hmm. okay? How long can a household or a business survive in net deficit? Not very long. It kills the economy every single time. Yeah, and, and it's so counterintuitive, Sean. The idea that running a that uh, running a uh, surplus ends up harming the private private sector, but when you think about it, it makes sense. It just means that there's x amount of money in circulation. It just means the government has a disproportionate amount of it, right? Yeah. So that I mean, that has to come from somewhere, right? So and and because those, those you know private people, private companies can't print their own money, 
right? They can't fix that problem. They right, but the right. government can. So if there's anyone you want to be happy have running a running and running a debt or running deficit, it's the government. Right. Well, if you raise taxes too high, it's deflationary. It's taking right. money out of the economy. Yes. Right? So this is this is where conservatives are actually a little bit right about this. Is that if you if you, you you don't want to raise your taxes too high? No, right? definitely not. Definitely so not. and the the key to taxation is you have to tax the right people for the right reasons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and and mm-hmm. it's not about collecting money. No, it's about it's about <laughs> it's it's about controlling. It's about influencing behavior. In the end of the day, right? That like yeah. at that, that point, and like you said, safeguarding democracy. Um, frankly, uh, that's like I think the most fundamental reason. Yeah, and so it comes down to a question, and this is the question that every that is that is really on the top of everyone's minds, whether you're a conservative or a liberal, is what can we afford? You know, mm-hmm. conservatives mm-hmm. think think we can't afford anything because we've already spent too much money. Liberals are constantly looking at you know pony politics. Everyone should have a pony. Free college, <laughs> Medicare for all, generous right. social spending, libraries, schools, parks, roads. How are you going to pay for it? Okay. So Bernie Sanders proposed to pay for his ponies with a financial transactions tax. Elizabeth Warren proposed a wealth tax. And this is to say they believe that billionaires will pay for everyone's ponies. And this is, this is going to come as a shock to the left, but the billionaires actually don't need to pay for it. We should be taxing billionaires for different reasons, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as we already mentioned, to prevent them from taking over democracy and being able to hire so many lobbyists and spend so much money on political campaigns that true Democrats can never win. Yeah. And that we and therefore we can't run the kind of of MMT that we're talking about here. Right. Because. Right. right that's why it's so fucking important, because these folks will absolutely undermine that system with disproportionate power because they benefit without that system. Right. But we don't need their money to pay for programs is what, you no. know, the, the government That's can free, the point. Because what does a billionaire do with their money anyway? It's sitting in uh, it's sitting in various assets, usually financial assets, possibly stocks or bonds or a bank account, right? It's not circulating in the economy creating value. So, it's not inflationary. Billionaires fortunes are not necessarily inflationary. They can be depending on what they do with them, but you know, so this is this is what sort of severs the tie with uh, traditional uh, uh, liberal or democratic socialist arguments is the idea that um, we, we're, you, you know, they want to use billionaires money to pay for social programs, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. that's not even the point. So, fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. And so the debate we, sh- we should be having is very different from the debate that Republicans or Democrats are having. Um, it goes back to another example. If you don't believe that we can create money from nothing. Here's a quote from Alan Greenspan. He said, there's nothing to prevent the federal government from creating as much money as it wants and paying it to somebody. The question is, how do you set up a system which assures that the real assets are created, which those benefits are employed to purchase? Exactly. So um, the U.S. government is a scorekeeper. You know, when you're when you're when you're scoring a game of of baseball or football, you don't run out of points. (laughs) Right. So the, the Federal Reserve will clear any payment authorized by Congress with a keystroke. It can't run out of money. So um, the government spends money first by the authority of Congress. People can't pay their taxes until money is first spent into the economy. The taxing and borrowing are secondary operations. So if you understand 
this, you also understand that we never have to have the how you're going to pay for it conversation ever again. Instead, we should be having the conversation about determining the upper limits of the resources in the economy, making sure the government creates and spends enough money to unlock all of those resources. MMT gives us the policy tools to begin to create a much larger pie. And then we just have to decide democratically how we want to allocate that much larger pie of resources for greatest shared prosperity. MMT therefore achieves all of the fantasy goals for maximizing resources of an organization like the Venus Project. But it has the virtue of not being a fantasy. It operates using all of the existing tools and within the constraints of our capitalist and democratic system that we've built over many decades and even centuries. And that's our show. <laughs> Any final thoughts? Oh, man. I mean, it was really enlightening, man. I am so glad. Uh, obviously, I read the uh, the notes. I read the outline um, and I uh, and but I am really glad that you did the work to really, you know, investigate this because this is so fucking important, man. I mean, this like turns all of what you and I and all of us liberals, including liberals and it turns it all on its head. And I love it because it really challenges this idea of, 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 you know, the, the, the moral element where right? we talked about sin is debt. Like, I love that it challenges that idea because I hate those kinds of ideas. We both hate those kinds of ideas. So um, anyway, I, it was a great show, man. And, and thanks for all the hard work and you did a great job. Oh, thanks. And thanks to, you know, uh, Stephanie Kelton and L Randall Ray and Warren Mosler and, there's one other guy that I forget right now, but who contributed to this this whole because this is a fairly new thing that people mm -hmm. are starting to look at, even though it has its roots back in Keynesianism and 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 you know goes back a long way, but it's really revolutionary, and I hope that it makes it into government policy soon. So. I want to remind you to make sure and subscribe to this podcast. We're available on all the major podcast channels. Christoph and I work really hard to try to bring you great content every week. And of course, making the show is something we both really enjoy. We don't do any advertising. So if you like what you're hearing, follow us on social media, leave us a good rating, write a review of our show, and take the time to talk about us on Facebook, Twitter, blog about us, tell your friends and family, word of mouth really matters. And also please don't hesitate to email us with any notes or suggestions. We love hearing from you. So thanks for being here. And remember, wherever you are, you can be radically secular. You've been listening to The Radical Secular, a podcast dedicated to the separation of church and state and the pursuit of justice. For full video episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel.